knock on wood, let's at least hope that this recording doesn't require someone to have to put their device into a into a, a, a makeshift cooling system, let's just say. Oh yeah. I, I was gonna suggest for some continuity, Yogesh could put the coffee in his freezer. <laughs> yeah. Manas, this was this was probably our episode with me and James were on one of the earlier episodes. It was I mean, the record time definitely took three hours. I think Yogesh was able to edit it down. And in large part that was because James' computer kept overheating. And so oh. So my computer, the microphone just did not work, period. And then I went on my phone and my phone worked, but then it started to overheat using Skype. <laughs> so I was, I taped the last like third of the episode standing in front of my freezer with the door open. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, very uh, quick I thing. get a new computer at that point, right? Oh, well, I got, I got the, obviously this, this is the same computer. I got the microphone fixed. Um, oh, okay. But yeah, the, the phone is is new. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, the phone is no longer overheating. <laughs> Welcome to episode 16 of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Rout. Thank you to our top Patreon subscriber, Darren Monk, and to all the other Patreons, Adam Hahn, Christine Welchel, Isaac Renner, to Andrew Darby, Cody Wilson, Ben Rothenberg, Patrick Friel, Jeremy Horwitz, Dargan Ware, Joe Graziak, Anthony Garino, Adam Villani, Peter Broda, David Crosson, and Mike Jesiorski. And to anyone listening, your name can go here. Just sign up at patreon.com slash recreational thinking. Our guests today are James Lasker, David Plotkin, and Mana Sarma. Remember that order, it's arbitrary, but it'll be consistent throughout the game. So if we could now each, going in that order, each of you could say where you're Zooming from and approximately one sentence about yourself, starting with James. Hey, I'm James Lasker. I'm Zooming from uh, my office on SMU's campus, and I'm a postdoc in physics. Okay, so not from your freezer. Not from my freezer this time, yes. <laughs> Uh, this was originally planned as a, a reunion of episode six, but unfortunately, we could only get two of the contestants back. But that's okay. We have a good replacement. All right, David. Hi, everyone. I'm David Plotkin. I am Zooming from my office at the Florida Museum of Natural History, where I work as an entomologist. Those of you that listened to my previous episode will definitely remember that because insects is one of my categories. However, I have uh, branched out into some categories that don't directly involve what I work with to a degree. So should be interesting to see what Yogesh has cooked up. <laughs> All right. So a couple episodes ago, we had Ben Zimmer. So we had an etymologist and now we have an entomologist. Oh, that's great. Looking forward to hearing the Ben Zimmer episode. That should be a lot of fun. Eh? All right. Manas? All right. My name is Manas Sarma. I'm Zooming from central Massachusetts. And one of my interests outside of math is sports trivia, especially football and basketball, as Yogesh can tell you from a trash tournament that he played. You definitely know your Super Bowls. Yes, I do. All right. But well, I guess I shouldn't give away whether that will come up, but <laughs> don't get don't get your hopes up too much. <laughs> Actually, I should. It's worth stating that I'm afraid of bugs. So, David, if you see me react uncomfortably, it's not because of you. I just don't like bugs at all. Oh, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I, I won't try to convert you on this podcast, don't, uh, but I also can reassure you that there are no real insects in this room. So unless I have an infestation I don't know about, nothing will be showing up on camera. Don't worry about that. We keep those. There's an infestation we don't know about in an entomology building. I think everyone is screwed. <laughs> well, the, the, the thing is, a lot of insects enjoy eating dead insects, and we certainly keep a bunch of insect specimens here for scientific research. So it is not surprising. 
but I won't get into the details. Again, I don't want to trigger anyone's entomophobia. All right, thank you, David. All right, so this game's in four rounds, one individual, three specialists. The first round I called the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle prior material. These questions mostly serve as a warm-up in scare quotes, not in the sense of being easy, but kind of throwing you in at the deep end style warm-up. It allows you to sort of, I guess, get your brain working and get you used to my writing style. These questions will also be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreakers if necessary. It's only been necessary once before, but you never know. This is the only round where you'll be working as individuals the entire time. So if the first person the question is directed at misses, it'll go to the second. Then the third, if the first two miss, the further back in the queue you are, the less of a direct shot you have, but you have more time to think and some potential answers could get taken off the table. And we'll rotate so each of you gets to answer three questions in first position, three in second, three in third. The rules will change after that. I will explain that when it happens. I will also right now remind you of what I guess we've settled on calling the Jimmy Lee rule. The new rule that basically, you know, you'll be penalized for passing or not giving an answer, not guessing, unless you provide a reasonable explanation for why you don't want to venture a guess. And just a standard reminder, the content of the podcast is you talking through your thinking process. So don't internalize your thinking. Let the audience in on it. Feel free to share any interesting connections or stories you have, but you don't have to talk just for the sake of talking. We don't need any filler. All right. Is everyone ready to begin? Ready. All right, so we will begin with James in first position on this question. Let's start the house-related questions early. Olivia Olivia Wilde's mother, Leslie Coburn, lost a 2018 election for a U.S. congressional seat in Virginia following a heated campaign in which she accused her opponent, Denver Riggleman, of being a, quote-unquote, devotee of what kind of erotica? And as always, I'll be putting the text of the question in the chat window so you can read it in addition to hearing it. John's mother, Leslie Cabern, lost a 2018 election for a U.S. congressional seat. A devotee of what kind of erotica? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm at a bit of a loss for words here, <laughs> um, but... The, the only, like, named type of erotica that I can think of off the top of my head uh, is, is hentai, and I'm, I'm going to have to go with that. It's a, it's a legitimate guess, yeah. Uh, you know, you have to guess, and that is definitely a, potent, a, that could, a plausible answer. That's a pl- it's not the yeah. correct one, but a, a good guess. David? I'm not exactly proud that I know the answer to this, but there is no shame, only points. Uh, <laughs> I believe that, so yeah, I've heard this anecdote, I believe Denver Eagleman was a Republican, and so he won the election against Lee Weltman was a Democrat. I think, however, in the 2020 election, he lost the primary because he was not pro-Trump enough. Like, he was a relatively reasonable voice in the conservative party that wasn't towing the party line, and thus he's no longer there. So I don't think he lost his seat because of this being this devotee, but I'm sure it didn't help that he was very into Bigfoot or Sasquatch. So I think that's what it is. I think that it would be Bigfoot erotica, not to be confused with other, like the Tarantino style uh, foot erotica, uh, Sasquatch erotica. That's my, that's my answer. (laughs) Yeah. I think I I probably would have accepted a broader answer, like, you know, monster erotica or whatever it's called, but yeah, it was specifically Bigfoot. He was accused of, he, he refers to himself as a Bigfoot scholar and says that his interest is entirely, uh, Platonic, I guess, is the word. Academic, maybe? <laughs> um, 
sure. But um, yes, during his time, he did he did manage to win that election. During his time in Congress, he introduced a resolution denouncing QAnon conspiracy theories. He also officiated a friend's same-sex wedding. This was sufficient, I think, for the local Republican Party to turn against him and refuse to nominate him in 2020. So yes, he is out of Congress now. That is a tenth of a point for David. And David will be in first position on this question. Long before serving as a senior writer-producer on Pretty Little Liars, you all knew there would be Pretty Little Liars related content, <laughs> Joseph Doherty drew acclaim for scripting the Emmy-winning 1991 HBO telefilm Cast a Deadly Spell, which mashed up noir and fantasy elements and starred Fred Ward as L.A. private dick Harry Philip Lovecraft. That film spawned a sequel set during the 50s Red Scare with what guessable title? Okay. Okay, so I'm trying to, have to figure out which angle of this clue makes it guessable. Is it the part that it's his name is Harry Philip Lovecraft? They should I be thinking of some Lovecraftian-related term? Or is it some play on the title Cast a Deadly Spell that would, you know, somehow, like there's, okay, also you've got the Red Scare, so there could be some sort of communist angle in the title. Okay, I'm trying to, so let's see, with Lovecraft, you've got Cthulhu, you've got Arkham, You've got the Elder Gods, the Great Old Ones, what are some other Lovecraftian terms? I'm trying to connect like some sort of like Elder God, part of the Elder God mythos with red or communism, but nothing's really, nothing's really coming. I wonder if cast a deadly spell is a term inspired by something like, you know, maybe some song title that I'm unaware of, or, you know, if I knew who sang that song, then another song of theirs would be the sequel title, but I just don't know. Or if it's a reference to a film, you know, like a, a film involving witchcraft or magic. But this is 1991, so it predates Harry Potter. So it can't be anything with that. I'm just, okay, I'm just not going to, I just don't going to pull this and I can't. So I'll just come with the very lame pun, but, you know, per Jimmy Lee rule, it's better than nothing. Cast a red lead spell. <laughs> That is very creative. Unfortunately, not correct, but I, I do enjoy the creativity that went into it. All right, Manas? So the 50s Red Scare had to do with communism, like David said, but Lovecraft was also a pretty proud racist. So uh, I think this was around the time China became communist. Wait, China. Is it the curse of the Jade Scorpion? Hmm. I was for a second, I was afraid where you were going to take that. But um, uh, yeah, that, uh, okay, that was a fairly innocuous guess. It's not, not correct. I believe Curse of the Jade Scorpion was a Woody Allen movie. Ah. So it has its own set of controversy there. <laughs> yes. All right, James. Well, um, I've been going through all the different possible connections here. Like, I, Los Angeles person i maybe if there's an la connection something to do with hollywood red scare i don't think this is the right time for uh hunt for red october i don't even know when that's said actually so maybe i'm completely wrong but i'm just going to zero in on hp lovecraft and say the call of cthulhu all right decent guess i think david sort of uh, stumbled across the key without realizing it right you were talking about cast a deadly spell you said maybe it's something related to witchcraft or magic is there a term related to witches that people associate with the 50s red scare um salem witch trials a different century the crucible 
Well, I mean, like, what, what's what's the expression people use when talking? I mean, there was definitely oh, like a witch hunt. Yes, right. That was definitely a parallel. The Crucible was definitely meant to parallel yeah. the 50s Red Scare, right? And and because of sort of those parallels, right, nowadays with historical perspective, we look back on that time and we refer to it as a witch hunt, which was... Okay, so the, the, the witch hunt was just the title of the, of the sequel? Yep. All right. Yeah, definitely guessable. <laughs> yeah, Fred Ward was... The role was recast with Dennis Hopper and Paul Schrader, of all people, took over the directing duties. All right, Manus now in first position on this question. So speaking of Fred Ward and detective fiction, as we just were, Ward appeared in two Hollywood mystery films of the early 1990s, directed by men also known as documentarians, Errol Morris's The Dark Wind and Michael Apted's Thunderheart. Broadly speaking, what type of setting do those two movies share? Oh, hmm. Okay, so the document, Thunderheart and The Dark Wind. Well, I guess I learn something new every day because I've never even heard of either of those. But any of the mystery books and movies that I've read and seen are any indication. They're all typically in bottle locations. So in few or only one locale, I'll say a closed room setting. Okay. I did, I did have a question about locked room mysteries a few episodes ago. So yeah, I can see, see your logic there, but not correct. Last James. Well, the titles of those two films are making me think that this is some sort of like off-earth or fantasy setting. But then being directed by documentarians is dragging me back to like real life sort of things that that happened. <laughs> um the Dark Wind and Thunderheart. I'm, I'll pick some uh, a setting that is common in sort of like mysterious scenes, but also, you know, a real thing that exists. So a forest. <laughs> All right. Yeah. See our logic there, but not correct. David. I'm, I'm interpreting this question as like a literal setting, like an actual like specific type of location. I think I might have a beat on this. So I guess mild spoiler for a quiz that may never come out. I've been kind of collecting OQL style pairs. Like I've been writing things for a potential friendly. And I wrote one about actor Zan McLarnan, who I've really enjoyed through his work and multiple things I've seen him in, probably most prominently the anthology series Fargo. And in researching him to fill out the pair, I believe he was cast in I forget what the, the show is called, but like AMC or someone's making a show about the Jim Chi detective novels, which is Jim Chi is a Native American detective. And I think he works like on a Indian reservation or, or a reservation of a tribe. I don't know which tribe. And I think Zama McLaren either playing Jim Chi or has a, a starring role as a different character in the show. And just because of that, I don't remember for sure, but those names Thunderheart and the Dark Wind are just kind of coming to me as being associated with that Zama McLaren on Wikipedia page. So... I also think that, you know, those definitely could be plausible names for something evoking the idea of Native American mythology. I know there's an actress, Amber Midthunder, Native American ancestry. The Thunderbird is a creature in Native American mythology. So, like, I, I think that Thunder appearing, Thunder hearts definitely, I could see being a Native American thing. So, if I'm right, then I feel pretty good about, about the, if I'm right about the Jim Chi connection, I feel pretty good about these being set on Native American reservations. And that's my guess. Are any of you fans of George R.R. R. Martin? 
Honestly, oh, no. Really, uh, no. you know, for fantasy novels. A few I've, weeks I've ago, I've seen his blog where he uh, talks about being a Jets fan and how life is misery and full of pain. <laughs> so, 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 yeah. So it's good you brought up his blog because that's a nice segue to what I was about to say, which is that a oh. few weeks, a few weeks ago, on his blog, he began a post by saying, "Dark winds are coming." And then he he gave a specific date when it would be coming with everyone anticipating, you know, winds of winter or whatever that's called. This was an A plus troll because, of course, he was not referring to his novel, but to a television series he is an executive producer on set in New Mexico, where he lives now, based on the novels of one of his friends, Tony Hillerman. It is based on the Leaphorn Chi mysteries that David mentioned, and it's called Dark Winds. So the Dark Wind, I think, is also probably based it, it, it takes drives its title from the same thing so yes the dark wind was definitely an adaptation of the lee porn chi i think maybe one maybe a specific one of them but it was set on a navajo reservation thunderheart was kind of inspired by the 1973 wounded knee incident i believe it's set on a lakota sioux reservation oh yeah so uh, awesome. david yeah david is correct Good job. just another great example of how Writing quiz questions will make you much better at being able to answer quiz questions. Considering how many I've written this week, I hope that's true. (laughs) (laughs) All right. James in first position on this. In which 2020 podcast does investigative journalist Patrick Radden Keefe chase down allegations that a certain hit song was penned by the CIA as Cold War propaganda? Please enunciate your answer carefully. Hmm. Okay. Investigative journalist chasing down allegations that a hit song with title not given was penned by the CIA's Cold War propaganda. Hmm. So I'm, I mean, based on the way this is written, this has to, the, the song title has to be in the podcast title. I don't watch a lot of podcasts or any podcast besides this one. Um, <laughs> so I'm not going to get it by having heard of the podcast, but what songs released, I don't know, somewhere between like the 50s and the 90s or the late 80s, early 90s could be a very pro-American song or an anti-Russian song, I guess. What could be a hit song? It's like <laughs> the title that keeps jumping into my head is a very, very not pro-American song born in the USA. But if I can't come up with anything else, that is going to be my answer that is very probably wrong. Um, is there anything that sounds like something American or something? Freedom. I wonder what, maybe uh, God Bless the USA is my answer. Okay, good guess, but... Not correct, David? So the fact that Yogesh said to please enunciate your answer carefully means that the podcast title is probably very close to, but not quite the name of the song. It reminds me of the the question that I've always get mixed up about how John Bolton's novel, The Room Where It Happened, is very similar to, but not the same as the Hamilton song, The Room Where It Happens. I always mix up the two and it's very bad to mix those up in quizzing. So I'm going to think it's like some, some circumstance like that. As far as propaganda goes, the only things that came to mind were Shiny Happy People, but I think that was, so I believe Shiny Happy People was, Michael Stipe wrote that as a way of kind of mocking the Maoist era 
Chinese life. And so, you know, you think Cold War, you think mainly U.S. and Soviets, but obviously China was a, a big player in geopolitics at the time. And so that's sort of it. But I think I want to go with something Soviet, but I really don't have anything better. So I obviously I thought if we didn't start the fire and because I've got nothing else really to go on, I'm going to say that the podcast was called We Did Start the Fire. Oh, wow. That's a that's a really creative guess. But <laughs> once again, not correct. Manas? Well, I think David can read minds because I was going to say something along the lines of we didn't start the fire. But so it's a 2020 podcast. I'm trying to think if that was on the anniversary or something. I'm going to start following podcasts now, but I don't know. I weren't a lot. A lot of those songs that I know that were written in the Cold War era with political undertones or anti-war songs, if anything. Please enunciate your answer carefully. So if the Cold War went from 1949 to 1991, that's, what, 42 years. And it would have to be, it would also have to be an American song because it wouldn't make sense for anyone to accuse the CIA of writing a foreign language song as Cold War propaganda. Hmm, what could it be? That might not be worth spending too much time on this round since you have. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I think I'll go with Light My Fire. All right. Yeah. So as yeah, you mentioned, kind of the Cold War ended in... Oh, by the way, yeah, speaking of podcast, thank you, James, for that plug. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess anyone who hears it is already listening to this podcast. So. Yeah. But, but I, <laughs> I appreciate the spirit. Um, and uh, yeah, regarding the shiny happy people, that was I think meant to kind of mock the the propaganda regarding the Tiananmen Square massacre. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, a little uh, post Mao, but kind of in the Deng Xiaoping era. But yeah, this is you know as, as Mana said, the end of the Cold War kind of dates to around ninety one with the fall of the Soviet Union. A couple years before that, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And of course, in oh, the wake, no, sorry, you figured, yeah. So, so in the wake of right, you know, there was a, a an encouragement of a spirit of communion. You know, we could be so close, like brothers, as uh, Scorpions sang in their song, which is often thought to be called "Winds of Change." But even though I think it sounds like they're singing "Winds of Change," the title of the song and the title of this podcast are both actually "Wind of Change." Oh. Yeah. Uh, okay. Scorpions are arachnids, not insects. It's not my fault. <laughs> there you go. I didn't. I didn't even think about how this connected to your thing, but I also didn't think about it in the previous episode with all of the contract bridge questions. I didn't even realize in this round I asked a question about an actual bridge, like a structure. <laughs> but all right. Um, yeah, that's a great question, though. Yeah. All right, David. Now in first position on this. The 2017 movie Rebel in the Rye dramatizes the real-life relationship between a young J.D. Salinger, played by Nicholas Holt, and what daughter of a noted writer? Portrayed in the film by Zoe Deutsch, she is better known for being romantically linked to a different and much older celebrity. Hmm. Okay, so Rebel in the Rye. Okay, so that's a reference to Catcher in the Rye. So young J.D. Salinger. I wish I knew exactly what decade. Like, I really should just know, you know, J.D. Salinger's rough lifespan, but I'm assuming that, so I'm not going to know, recognize the daughter, but I will recognize the, the writer. So I think it's like an early, early 20th century or a writer that had kind of their most prominent in the early 20th century. Uh, of course, unclear if the writer, the noted writer is Zoe Deutsch's character's mother or father. And 
this daughter is romantically linked to a different and much older celebrity. So obviously, you know, there are so many romantic links with huge age gaps that doesn't narrow it down a whole lot. And I'm just not making any connections here that I feel good about. So I think I'm going to try to make a guess based on the noted writer angle. If I knew anything about where a young J.D. Salinger lived, where he grew up, that would be really helpful because I associate him with, you know, being in the U.S., but maybe he didn't grow up there. If I knew Zoe Deutsch looked like, I might be able to, you know, if I knew what her hair color was, that might be up. But, you know, people wear wigs, people dye their hair, that that shouldn't be an influence. Uh, All right. Let's just say... I'm only saying this just to pick a writer and because I still do occasionally mix up these authors, I always mix up J.D. Salinger and D.H. Lawrence because of the initials, one of them being a D. So I'm just going to say Lawrence. All right. Yeah. In real life, Zoe Deutsch is the daughter of Leah Thompson. So that might help you envision what she looks like. Okay. But yeah, D.H. Lawrence, he was married, I think, to Frida von Richthofen, who was a cousin of the the Red Baron. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, okay. That was his fun in-law trivia there but yeah good guess not correct pass to manus so this is one case where it would help to be from new england because jd salinger lived most if not all of his life in new hampshire and he actually died in 2010 at the age of 91 i know that the capture in the rye was written in the 50s but i don't think it takes place then so if jd salinger was around in his 30s then say, hmm. I actually do kind of know what Zoe Deutsch looks like. She was in that movie, Why Him, with Brian Cranston and James Franco, which was a terrible movie. But what other authors were prominent at, at around that time? I think by Zoe Deutsch. Hmm. Okay, I'm just going to guess F. Scott Fitzgerald's daughter. Yeah, that's a good guess. I'm not sure if he actually had any children, but... Maybe he did. I don't know. Uh, yeah, good guess. Period appropriate, but not correct. James? Well, you stole my guess. Um, so let's see what else we have here. We've already covered Rebel in the Rise, just a catcher in the rye reference for J.D. Salinger. I have no idea what Zoe Deutsch looks like, uh, but we have a noted writer. I, d- I don't know if the distinction between writer and author or some other term matters to me. Writer seems to emphasize that it's not, you know, your traditional like novels, poems, plays sort of writer, but maybe like a newspaper columnist or essayist or something to that effect. Unfortunately, I still don't really have anything to to go on. Um, Around probably the 20s or 30s is when this guy is going to be active if Catcher in the Rye was written in like the the 50s, which is why I thought Fitzgerald was a good guess. Who else is from like that era? Uh, uh, I'm 1920s, like roaring 20s, flapper stuff. Like really, I'm just, <laughs> everything is taking me back to, to Fitzgerald. How about Steinbeck, Steinbeck's daughter? (laughs) Sure, yeah. Yeah, all right. This is actually another case where oddly Game of Thrones knowledge might come in handy. There was an actress on that show by the name of Una Chaplin, 
She also appeared in an episode of Inside Number 9, which was done without dialogue. Not sure if that casting was an intentional homage or just a neat coincidence. But she's, of course, the granddaughter of Charlie Chaplin and his much younger wife. It was a point of controversy at the time, whose name was Una O'Neill Chaplin. She was the daughter of Eugene O'Neill. Oh, nice. That's a good question. Man, I have done literally thousands of crosswords that have mentioned Una Chaplin in them at some point because O-O-N-A is a fairly rare name. And so I just either never came across or completely forgot about this, these relationships. So yeah, that was uh, very interesting. And uh, I'm going to kick myself later for not doing that. <laughs> All right. Manas in first position on this, moving away from pop culture. What admiral, whose nickname Old Graw gave us a term for watered-down rum, commanded Lawrence Washington, George's brother, at the 1741 Battle of Cartagena de Indias? Hmm. Okay. Who are some famous admirals? Okay. Oh, George Washington's brother. Well, I'm trying to think of what admirals were even, like, were even active at that time period. Sadly, I can't think of any. <sighs> Old Grog. Hmm. If I'm not mistaken, Grog comes from Europe, right? I mean, the term itself is European. But if it's a rum, hmm. I'll say Captain Morgan. Okay, yeah. That was definitely named for a real person. I don't think he was an admiral, but good guess. I almost said I don't think he was admirable, which was probably also true. <laughs> was he a pirate or was he a, uh, a, a privateer or something okay. like that? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I yeah, I was going down that same line. I'm hoping that the second half of this question is just fun fact and not where the hint is. But in the same line of rums that are named after seafarers, there are two other entries that I'm familiar with. The third one, I cannot remember the guy's name. But the second one is the one that's named after an admiral, and it's called Admiral Nelson. So I'm going to say that for my answer. All right. I see your logic there, but not correct. David? Yeah, James, I had the same thought you did. I mean, I know that obviously Horatio Nelson would have been much too young if he was even born in 1741, but he could have very easily had a father who was an admiral, and that would have been my guess Mm -hmm. had you not already guessed it. I agree with Manus that grog is European term. I think it comes from Scandinavian, like glug or something like that. But I don't want to guess like a Scandinavian name. Like I just, I don't think that grog was derived from the Admiral's name. It's going to be unrelated. Looking at this, uh, the other part. So Cartagena de Indias means Carthage of the Indies. So that to me suggests a battle in the Caribbean. There is a South American city called Cartagena which I forget if it's in Colombia or Venezuela. Yeah, it's in Colombia. Oh, thank you. Um, so, but I mean, right, like as far as, as far as Europeans involved in the South American history of the 1700s, like I don't know of any that'll be involved in Colombia, like Northern South America. You've got San Martin, who I forget if he was Spanish or native Argentinian in Argentina. You've got O'Higgins in Chile, but I assume Lawrence Washington was British. So... And I guess O'Higgins, right? He could have been of Irish descent and part of the, right? That's not British, that's UK. Did the UK exist in 1741? I, I always mix up when those things merged. And I just don't know like Caribbean history at this time. This is, I mean, Hispaniola, right? Like what's going on in Hispaniola? 
but I think it was all French. I don't think it was anything British owned. I'm actually remembering now that in Treasure Island, the Hispaniola had, Hispaniola was the ship, and there was a location called the Admiral Benbow Inn. And I don't think that's a real admiral, but it could be. So do I go with a possibly fake admiral? Do I go with a South American figure like O'Higgins, who was not, I don't even know if he was an admiral. In fact, it probably wasn't because he was more of a politician. He was you know, one of the founding fathers of Chile, of modern Chile. Or do I just go with like a common surname? Or there's some like Hamilton reference here I'm not getting, right? Like Hamilton was certainly, you know, born in Nevis if Hamilton you know, uncle or grandfather was this admiral. <sighs> so like I have this sinking sensation that Schrodinger style, the one I don't pick will be the right answer. <laughs> let's say, let's go with Benbow as my guess, Benbow. All right. Well, I think you'll be relieved to learn that none of the things you were considering was correct. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, Grog, I think, at least the story that I read was that this man's, I guess, his coat was made of like grograin or grogum or whatever, however it said. So I guess grog transferred from the coat to him as a nickname and then by extension to the rum drunk by soldiers or the sailors. Oh, okay. And yeah, the, the Washington part was the key here, right? Lawrence Washington was apparently an admirer of his commanding officer and wanted to memorialize him. What is the famous thing that Lawrence Washington founded, I guess, or at least gave a name to. May have predated him, but he gave it its name. It's the estate he later passed on to his brother, Mount Vernon. Oh, okay. Yeah, this this man's name was Edward. Yeah. Edward Vernon. That's a that's a great connection. Yeah. I did not know that at all. All three of us focused on the first half, but the second half was the uh yeah, I got it. Even if I had thought of Mount Vernon, I would. I have always assumed that George Washington himself called it that. I would never have did not realize that it was uh, his brother. So yeah, that's good knowledge. All right, starting with James. Last cycle of these before we move on to the next round. Starting with James on this question: On which calendar date are you most likely to hear an address to the lasses, followed by a reply to the laddies? An address to the lasses and a reply to the laddies. So this is like 100% somewhere in the British Isles, I have to think. And if it isn't in the British Isles, it has to be somewhere in the Commonwealth. Like lasses and laddies just screams that. This sounds sort of to me like a a church-associated thing, but a lot of church-associated things are movable feasts. Like Easter was the first thing that came to my mind, but that's not a calendar date. That's a feast that's on some Sunday, depending on the moon and things. It was a church thing. I mean, Christmas is probably the most notable fixed-date feast. Oh, but wait, no, back, back to the British thing. I I don't know why you would be addressing the lasses on this day, but it would be like November 5th is certainly a notable date in the the British Isles. And lasses and the laddies, is is there a... Oh, okay. I've got another angle here. If it's the lasses and the laddies, this is like a, a romantic thing. Could be Valentine's Day. And that is a fixed day. It is a church thing. So for all the things I've just said, I've got to say St. Valentine's Day, February 14th is my answer. That's uh, 
Very good guess. I absolutely see the logic there, but not correct. Pass to David. So you you want a month and day as the answer? I can't yes. just okay. That's what I was afraid of because I'm pretty sure this is this is Robert Burns' day, which makes sense. You know, the problem is I don't know when that is. And before the pandemic, I have been invited in multiple different years to a Burns Day party by a uh, a British museum employee, and I never I, I never attended. So I forget what day it is. Oh man, and of course I'm regretting that now. And I'm just trying to think of like any Burns poems that help. I mean, there's Auld Lang Syne, but I know that it's not January 1st. Burns Day is definitely not on January 1st or New Year's Eve. So I'm trying, I'm just trying to pull a memory of when was I invited to that party? Like what, what week was it? Was there anything going on that I can pin that to? <sighs> I feel like it was in January, not January 1st, but I do think it was, it was early in the year. So I'm going to say just... Hope for a lucky guess on the date, January 15th. Yeah, so before all our British listeners yell at me, I should point out that the celebration is generally referred to as Burns Night, not Burns Day. Ah, my apologies. Again, I didn't go. I didn't attend. <laughs> this, this is all my fault. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, uh, yeah, you, you took your shot, though. You had a one in 365 and a quarter chance and unfortunately did not hit. So I'll pass to Manus. Well, I'm glad James said Valentine's Day because I was going to say that. But since I know it's wrong now, address to the lasses followed by your reply to the laddies. Well, when David mentioned Robert Burns Day, it actually made me think of another author, William Shakespeare, who wrote a lot of love-themed poems and plays. His birthday and death day, according to some records, is April 23rd. So I'll say that. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is, yeah, that is the date that is attributed to both Shakespeare's birth and death. I see your logic there. So good guess, but it was David who was on the right lines and who ended up being exactly one digit off Burns Night. Burns Night falls on January 25th. Oh, well, is that Robert Burns' birthday? Yeah. Okay. As soon as you said Burns Night, I knew that's what it was. I just didn't know the date either, so it wouldn't have helped me. Um. (laughs) Well, these these are... These are not meant to be easy questions, but they're certainly giving you good warm-ups. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you got you got very close. Yeah. And there's no honorable, I mean, there's no like half of a tenth of a point right. I can give you. <laughs> like if he was born before the Gregorian shift or, or you know, that time, maybe you could argue, but I don't think that. <laughs> All right. David now in first position on this. In creating the legendary McLaren F1, Gordon Murray took inspiration from an earlier supercar known to automotive buffs as the NSX. Note that NSX is that car's model. Under what make, in other words, the kind of brand name, was it sold in the U.S. and Canada? Okay. So McLaren, so really, I have seen the film Ford v. Ferrari, and like I think McLaren was mentioned a couple of times there. I believe McLaren is a New Zealand company originally, and that's all I really know about it. Obviously, they're involved in Formula One. I don't follow Formula One. NSX was the model, make, so NSX. So what could that stand for? Maybe something Series X and the N is going to be the helpful thing. I guess, I mean, right, so... But if, if this is an earlier supercar that Murray taking the inspiration from, the end would not stand for New Zealand because Murray is the McLaren guy or Murray is a McLaren man. I just, this is a really, you know, really weak subject of mine. I just don't know anything about autos, either from a sport perspective or from a, you know, mechanical perspective. 
I just, just a total blind spot for me in most respects. So I just can't figure out like anything I'm thinking of that starts with an N, like Nissan. It's just, why would that be derived from a supercar? It's not. So I just don't under, I'm not making the connection here. Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to take a, a supercar. I've, well, so again, any supercar I've heard about from Ford v. Ferrari, like the Shelby Cobra, presumably that was just known as the Cobra. It would, why would they call it the NSX? And, you know, I don't think Carol Shelby worked with McLaren in any capacity. And I don't know when McLaren F1 was created. I feel like it might be before Shelby. So I just am not going to get this. I'll say that the old supercar that would have been well, what are some well-known supercars? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'll just stick with Cobra, lock that in. All right. Yeah, I also, I mean, cards is also not like one of my wheelhouse subjects. A while ago, I went to a talk by Dan Neal, who I think was the first critic to win the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism for writing about cars. And I was like, oh, I guess it's like an actual thing that people, you know, are really invested in. So, you know, I do sometimes like to do a deep dive into, into it, you know, just to sort of see what other people are seeing in it. But yeah, uh, good guess. Not correct. Pastamanis. I think I actually know this one because... A while ago, my brother and I used to be obsessed with cars, so we would just try to find out whatever information we could on different makes and models of cars. I think my dad and my brother were talking about the NSX specifically once, and a lot of Acura models follow that follow that naming convention, just putting letters together. So I'll say Acura. Okay, yeah. So I mean, one one of the inspira- one of the other inspirations for this question was my marketing strategy class because. Basically, the NSX was made by Honda, and in the rest of the world, it's called the Honda NSX. In America, Honda has discovered that Americans just won't associate these sort of like high-performance vehicles, much less supercars, with the brand name Honda. So they developed another brand name as their sort of high-performance division, which is Acura. So yes, in the US and Canada, it's sold as the Acura NSX. Hmm. Good job. Nice get. Yeah. All right. And the final question of this round, starting with Manas in first position. The failed 2012-13 sitcom Marvin Marvin was Nickelodeon's last attempt to build a show around which YouTuber? Wait a minute. This was right when I started college, so I had no TV access. So I wouldn't have known this, but I think there was a YouTuber who had a big presence around this time named... Lucas Cruikshank, who's better known as Fred, he was on an episode of iCarly once. So I'll say Lucas Cruikshank. And you'll say that correctly. Ah, thank you. Yeah, good job. Avoiding the trap of calling him Fred, which obviously on this show, he was not Fred. He was not playing Fred on this show, so that wouldn't apply. But yes, you were. I I almost certainly would have guessed Fred. I had no idea that wasn't his real name. (laughs) Yeah, good, good knowledge. Thank you. Yeah. All right, so on those last two questions, you pull into a tie, I guess, with David. So scores are James 0.0, David 0.2, minus 0.2. Those will all be swept away very soon by the larger point values, but they actually won't break a tie, at least not between minus and David. My- yeah. So that's what will happen inevitably. <laughs> yes, obviously, that's what's going to happen. Since we're done with the first round, I just realized I didn't actually grab any water. So I'm going to go grab a bottle of water. I'll be back in like a minute. I guess I'll take this time to refill my bottle as well. Yeah, Yeah. I'll grab a water too. 
We definitely have been talking up a storm on this. (laughs) True, true. Yeah. All right. So far, so good. (laughs) (laughs) I like how you're like, I got uh, 22% of the questions. So great. (laughs) I'm doing great. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I was referring to more just from a a technical side. Everything's been working as planned. Right. No difficulties there. But yeah, Yeah. uh, believe me, uh, getting, getting two out of nine on these questions, I'm more than happy with that. Yeah. And I obviously was reasonably close on the Burns day one, but I don't know if this means I'm more or less incentivized to tell my colleague that, hey, you should listen to this episode. I just don't know if it's going to make him happy or really frustrated. It does mean in 2023, I know what I'm doing on January 25th. That's right. I yeah. I mean, your last experience with this, not counting the streaming show, your last experience was very technical difficulty heavy. I've had several since then, especially on Zoom. I mean, there have been a few times people dropped on Zoom, but they just, you know, rejoined. It wasn't a huge deal. So far, yeah, the, the technical dif- yeah, the technical stuff has, has been working pretty well. And certainly with the switch to Zoom, the audio quality shot up quite a bit. Yep. I guess in retrospect, I should have switched earlier, but it took me a while to, you know, even like figure out what Zoom is and how it worked. And I'm always a late adopter on these things. Also, it wasn't, it, and it's still not free to record like this. So you have to, you know, oh. you rely on one of your guests having a premium Zoom or you just have to, those constant interruptions, which can make recording, I'm sure, even more difficult. Yeah, doing it in 45 minute chunks would have been a nightmare. All right. So we all had our water break. And I assume around from now, we'll all have a bathroom break. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is going to run. I can already tell this is going to run a little long, not absurdly long, but as long as we're all okay with that. So now we're heading into the not all that hard round and this round and all successive rounds, each of you gets three specialist questions related to your categories with the caveat not intended to be a fair comprehensive test of your knowledge of them. Questions may relate directly or obliquely and to keep everyone on their toes, I won't reveal the categories, although I think I inadvertently revealed one of James's on Facebook. Before you can answer, your opponents will get to work together to try and steal the points from you. You'll only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss. If I tossed over to you without telling you whether they got it right, if you know for certain they did, you can just confirm. Otherwise, it's in your interest to behave as though they got it wrong, because you won't be getting any points if they got it right anyway. So just copying their answer won't help you. There may be bonuses, occasional extra questions people were stolen from. These are quasi-randomly sprinkled throughout the game, so they won't attach to every question that's stolen necessarily. They relate to the question and kind of spin off from it, so they won't necessarily be in your specialist category, and they won't necessarily be at the same level of difficulty as the question they're attached to. So these questions are not all that hard. They'll be worth two points as a steal. One is a specialist, one is a bonus. That will go up in later rounds. And now and for the rest of the game, points will go to both stealers, even if only one knew the answer. One of many ways in which luck plays into the outcome of the game. So yeah, I mean, it's just a game. The points are there to give things a sense of stakes. They're not meant to be a barometer of how good you are as a quizzer or how worthy you are as a human being or anything like that. All right, so we will begin now with David and Manas working together to attempt to steal from James, everyone ready to begin? Ready. All right. A May 2021 online chess game between 10-year-old prodigy Tani Adewume and what woman ended with Adewume cheekily stating, she didn't blunder her queen, but she blundered her king. I have not seen this particular game, but I'm assuming this is a Queen's Gambit reference. So I'm inclined to say, you know, Anya Taylor-Joy, right? Like if this is some sort of promotional material for the show. Mm. Do you yeah. have any actual chess knowledge? No, I, I don't keep up with chess. Okay. 
Yeah, I might as well go for that then. Yeah, just make sure there's no other things I'm missing. I mean, this is around the time the show came out, right? May 2021. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Again, the fact that she explicitly goes out of the way to mention something with the queen. I mean, yeah. I guess the queen's gambit is, I'm assuming, I don't know what the queen's gambit actually is in chess. I'm assuming it's a, a risk where if you don't do it correctly, then you risk exposing your queen to being captured and thus, you know, saying she explicitly didn't avoid that as a reference to the title of the show. It seems to fit. I have nothing better. So if you're all right with it, let's. I'm on board with that. All right. We'll lock in Anya Taylor-Joy. Very logical guess, given your level of knowledge. But as I think James knows, it's not correct. That is not the correct answer. So when you started this question with Taniata Wumi, I thought you were going to refer to the game where like, he played Hikaru, like the St. Louis chess club in Blitz and had a winning position, but then like threw it away. But when you said woman and blundering her queen, you were not referring to the queen's gambit, but rather the Botez gambit, which is when you lose your queen for absolutely nothing. And so my, my answer officially is Botez. I'm, I'm assuming it's Alexandra, but could easily be Andrea as well. So, Botez. <laughs> I think I think the one who blunders her queen or is associated with that is is Alex, not uh, yeah. Andrea. Yeah, David may may have a memory. I, I do. I feel like this is a blunder on my end. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I had nothing, so don't worry about it. But then this is the second time I have incorrectly answered this question, and it's been recorded by Yogesh on his streaming show. I was basically asked the same thing or a similar thing where the answer was Botez. And yep, that is a shame. But, you know, if, if you feel like, yeah, if you feel like you've blundered, don't worry, you have good company. <laughs> All right. James and Manus now to try and steal from David. Okay. All right. LeBron James's 2010 televised announcement, The Decision, was broadcast from the Greenwich, Connecticut chapter of what nonprofit youth organization? James raised over $2 million for this organization via the broadcast, an amount supplemented by another $1 million combined from HP and Coke. Is it I'm pretty sure it's the Boys and Girls Club? Oh, yeah. My other thought was Big Brother, Big Sister, but I don't think they have like. Isn't that now the Boys and Girls location? Club? What? I thought Big Brother, Big, Big Sister was now the Boys and Girls Club. I don't think so. But I, I think it is the Boys and Girls Club because don't they advertise a lot during NBA games? I don't. I've, I've watched like 10 basketball games and seven of them were that 3-1 comeback from LeBron. So I, I would not know. Oh, it um, the Boys and Girls Club then. Yeah. Boys and Girls Club is our answer. All right. A successful steal. Very good. Nice. Alrighty. All right, next question, David and James to try and steal from Manas. So I used a version of this question in the super hard round of episode four, which means I can now classify it as not all that hard. I'm just going to declare. So the Colat's conjecture refers to the unproven statement that given enough iterations, a sequence generated by a certain basic algorithmic procedure will always reach one and then enter an infinite loop. These sequences are sometimes dubbed hailstone sequences due to the way they both rise and fall. So let's say I start my Colat sequence with a seed of 200. What will be the next term in the sequence that is greater than the term before it? So two, So the Colat's conjecture is you, if it's divisible by two, you divide it by two. And then it's, I think it's 3n plus one if it isn't divisible by two. So if that's 200, then you go down to 100, you go down to 50, you go down to 25, that's not divisible by two. So three N plus one for 25 would be 76. That math sounds right to me if you have it right. 
you have more knowledge of this than I do. I did remember it's an idea of like, you apply different mathematical operations. I didn't know what those were. So I have nothing really to contribute beyond what you said. I'm fine with going with that. Then let me just write this down because my mental math, ever since I started having Python do the math for me, my mental math has uh, declined. But yeah, this is indeed, if my logic is right, the answer is 76. All right. So it was indeed not all that hard for you, at least. For other people, no doubt it would be. But uh, yeah, you get the ceiling point, you and David. Very nice. And Yogesh and I talked specifically about this a few months ago. David and Manas now to try and steal from James. Although the climax of the 1995 James Bond movie Goldeneye is set in Cuba, it was filmed near a natural sinkhole. At what site elsewhere in the Caribbean? Oh, what? Uh, I mean, I know that. this one. So I will say that I know that Belize, doesn't it have a great sinkhole off the coast of Belize, which would be on the Caribbean side, right? Wait, yeah, it would. Well, if it's on the... If it's off of Belize's east coast, then yeah. Oh, I thought I thought Belize was only had a coast on, like on the Caribbean, that it didn't have a coast on the Pacific. Right? Isn't Belize and El Salvador right the two Central American countries that? Wait. Oh. Coasts on both. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, without question, there is a famous hole in the ocean or in the in the water near Belize. It's associated with Belize, like the Great Blue Sinkhole. That doesn't mean this is the sinkhole. And I'm also, right, when you think of the Caribbean, you don't necessarily mean the Caribbean Sea. You mean, you know, the islands. And it's possible that that sinkhole is more considered part of the Gulf of Mexico. I just don't know what what that boundary is. Well, but uh, yeah, but Belize is also the only English-speaking Central American country. So that, at least, so that that also makes sense because of that. But, hmm. Yeah. Well, let's put it this way. Can you name any other sites that, have a sinkhole in the Caribbean. No, they're all islands, so I would hope they don't have sinkholes. Yeah. I'm also wondering, so admittedly, I have not seen Goldeneye. I actually haven't seen any of the Brosnan James Bond films. I don't know if the climax, like if the climax is not set on the water, like on boats or something. No, it's not. Well, then I don't know how it's set near this Belize sinkhole if it's not on the water, but. Well, it says it's filmed near, not, well, yeah. It's also possible that I'm conflating Goldeneye with another Pierce Brosnan film. So right, you think about where British film crews would be going, right? You could see a connection with the Bahamas they might have. But is there a sinkhole near Atlantis, right? Like, I, I don't know. And like I just, I'm wondering, even though... Or maybe... Maybe, what about Jamaica? So what site would it be? So it's not... So when he says site, he doesn't say country. He doesn't say island. He says site. So it's probably, and he doesn't say city. So it's probably, we can't just say, you know, Kingston. We'd have to say a site that isn't really the name of a city in Jamaica. Okay. Oh, so it's a specific sinkhole then. I'm assuming that like there's a national, maybe like a national park of some sort or a natural area, you know, or, or, or again, if it is the Belize sinkhole, right? Off the coast of Belize might be sufficient as a location because it's not, on land, obviously. Um, okay. I, I just, I, just I mean, don't. I don't have any. I don't have anything. So yeah, and because if I knew of any other locations of sinkholes, or if I knew where the film took place, and there was like context loose from the film, I'd go with that. But I just can't think of anything. So we'll just say. I mean, I've I've got nothing better. If you're yeah, okay that, go for it. Yeah, I don't like it, but we'll say you know the 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 great blue sinkhole of Belize. That's what you're locking in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
All right. James has been holding himself back clearly this whole time. So I guess you did not spoil my category hard enough um, (laughs) because they were not anywhere near the astronomy connection, which is what the the fact that it's built in a sinkhole makes the Arecibo former radio telescope after it collapsed like a year ago, one of the most unique telescopes in the world because it doesn't actually point. It's just whatever is overhead you're, you're getting because it is a giant sinkhole in the ground that you're getting. So the answer is Arecibo telescope in Puerto Rico. Oh, very nice. Yes, that is correct. I definitely did not think, I did not think this was part of your, I assume we were going to get some astronomy stuff coming up later. I, yeah, but no, this is. I should have known well the James seen. Bond part didn't come from you. It came from the person well, who chose yeah. James Bond as his own specialist category. <laughs> should have figured that out, but I did not. Indeed, yeah. As uh, Alinda Sagara sang from El Barrio to Arecibo, we're covering here. It was damaged by Hurricane Maria and collapsed a little bit later after that. Very sad for those in the astronomy community. Mm-hmm. All right, James and Manis now to try and steal from David. Holly Bergen, the subject of a question in a previous episode. It was originally supposed to be the previous episode, but we had to reschedule this one. So a couple episodes ago, not yet released. But anyway, Polly Bergen made a guest appearance on The Sopranos as Fran Felstein, a former mistress of Tony's father, who also carried on an affair with JFK. That character was clearly inspired by Judith Campbell Exner, a real-life figure who similarly claimed to have had intimate relationships with both JFK and gangster Sam Giancana. The latter was a leading boss in which city's mob outfit? Oh, okay. My first guess was Chicago because they had a big Italian presence, especially around this time, right? Yeah, but so the Sopranos connection is drawing me to the like mid-Atlantic and they're obviously associated with New Jersey and Atlantic City had, obviously, because of all the casinos, a huge mob scene. Yeah. I don't know if it was specifically Italian. Well, that but, makes sense, but I feel like that, that makes it too obvious, doesn't it? I mean, the obvious answer to me would be New York City. But, like, that's not, there's, I don't think that's right. But I, I think Atlantic City makes a lot more sense. I don't see any Chicago connections in here at all, other than the the mob and the uh, the Italian name, but like Sicily or some city on Sicily would be an equally correct answer from that uh, question. Same with New York City. Uh, well, I mean, it's just asking about which city Sam Sam Giancana is associated yeah. with. I don't think it's. Yeah, I guess it doesn't have to be a direct connection to the person on The Sopranos. Like, it could be based on it, and they could have picked some New York thing where this guy was Chicago. And familiar. What did you say looks familiar? Oh, I... uh, Just the name Sam Giancana sounds familiar to me, like... Oh, okay. It does not sound familiar to me, which is why I'm not confident at all on this. Well, we've got two two possible answers, Chicago and Atlantic City. David's bursting over there. <laughs> I feel like whatever you pick is going to be the wrong one. I, yeah, it's the, the same thing as from the, the warm-up round with David. Um, <laughs> flip the coin and the wrong head comes up. <sighs> I'm, I'm still leaning Atlantic City, but I'm not, all right. I guess we I'm can not terribly confident. I just think Atlantic City sounds too obvious. 
on the one hand, it's too obvious. On the other hand, like Atlantic City is not like a a city, I guess you too commonly think of. Like it's pretty much on the way out of being a casino place. Like I went there on my 21st birthday and it was already like there was nobody there. It's just dead. So like it could just be harder because it's not too much of a thing anymore. I just Chicago like is is definitely a big like mob place, but I just don't see any connection to it in the rest of the question. Well, also I I guess from a geographic standpoint, Boston could also make sense, but I don't think I don't think even now Boston has a large Italian presence. I think it would be more Irish, but yeah. I I'm not familiar with Boston, only been there a couple times. So Atlantic City or Chicago, we should we should pick one. Yeah, I I mean I still think we should pick Chicago just because like, okay, maybe it's not that obvious. Maybe it's maybe that's the the thing then. Okay, are we're gonna lock in Chicago? All right, it's interesting to consider Atlantic City because I believe that episode in Camelot was directed by Steve Buscemi, who later starred as an Atlantic City gangster on a different show. But is Chicago correct, David? I don't know. I don't know for sure the answer to this. Obviously, I will not be guessing that. So, okay, so, so actually, in the interest of time, I'm just going to cut you off there. So James was saying he didn't see a connection in the question to Chicago. Obviously, James did not have the same father I did, who was obsessed, obsessed with the mob, uh, the Italian mafia, and who would repeatedly tell me about how the 1960 election was delivered to JFK by the uh, unholy alliance of Mayor Daley and Sam Giancana, who, as he put it, threw ballot boxes into the Chicago River. <laughs> Wow. Good good decision to good job. <laughs> yeah. And I, I definitely would not have guessed Chicago had it come to me. Like had you not said it, I was probably gonna go with a you know Newark or something else in, in New Jersey. All right, so we have our first bonus question of the game for David. Elena Satine played Judy Silver, a character partially inspired by Judith Campbell Exner on the Stars Drama Magic City, and also played the actual Ms. Campbell on the third episode of what NBC time travel series? NBC time travel series. Okay. Boy, I forget what network Quantum Leap was on. That's obviously a very plausible thing to guess. There's also that more recent time travel series, whose name I'm, I'm blanking on the one that stars Brian Viznik. Of course, I can't remember it now. It's not Predestination. It's, oh boy. Are there any other time travel series? Time After Time was a movie. I don't think it's adapted into a show. This sucks. It's probably the answer to the show I can't remember the title of. I don't want to waste any more time on it. I'll just guess Quantum Leap. Okay, yeah. I mean, it is it is a show. Actually, Goran Vishnik played the villain on it. The male lead was someone so forgettable, I've already forgotten his name. <laughs> <laughs> the show was called Timeless. Timeless. Timeless? Oh. Timeless, yes. Timeless, okay. I think I've heard of that one. Yeah, it had, it had a cult following. It it managed, I think, after being it canceled to, to claw back and get a, a farewell season and a finale. All right, David and James now to try and steal from Manas. More television here. Between the onset of the modern best drama series category at the Primetime Emmys, which I'll place in 1966 for reasons I won't bore people with here, and the somewhat divisive wins by Game of Thrones in 2018 and 2019, 
There was only one show nominated in that category, Best Drama Series, in its eighth or later season. It's also the only show to win that category in its seventh or later season before Game of Thrones. So name that series and note that when a show split its final season into two parts to get two bites at the Emmy Apple for purposes of this question, I'm counting it as a single season. Okay, so famously Breaking Bad and Mad Men AMC had them split their final season. Uh, Breaking Bad did not, even regardless of that, Breaking Bad did not reach seven seasons. Mad Men, I have not watched, it may have. The question is, so I think that, however, we're talking about, it would have had to have been nominated in its eighth season, which was split into eighth and ninth for AMC's purposes, but Yogesh is saying it counts as a single season. I don't think it lasted that long. So what other dramas can we think of? There's The West Wing, which I think only lasted yeah. seven. I don't think it went to eight. Would, would something like ER, like that lasted forever. That's true. So let's see, it's eighth season. Okay, sorry. So it was not necessarily nominated in its eighth season. It was nominated in its eighth or later, but it won in its seventh season. So that would have been like 2002 around that time. It's hard to believe at that point in TV history, ER wins best drama. I mean, it's not impossible, but... Not impossible. Yeah. Did any of the Law and Orders win, like, best drama? Like, because, again, there are things that lasted forever. Right. That would have probably had... The first Law and Order, its eighth season, probably... Seventh season probably would have been around mid-90s, like, 97. Yeah. Again, it just doesn't feel right. I mean, we should... I mean, the problem is my knowledge of older shows. Like, was Nash... Nash, I assume, was treated as a sitcom. I don't think I can't yes, see that. Yeah, no, that was absolutely that would have been a con. Yeah. yeah, okay. So it can't be that. What other long dramatic shows have been? Do you know how long Homicide Life on the Street ran for? I've never even heard of that. So I don't okay. think that's gonna be the answer. All right. Hill Street Blues, I think, also didn't run that long. Oh, we're talking about cop shows. I could see NYPD Blue getting a nomination. I mean, yeah. it definitely ran for I think eleven or twelve seasons. And I think it was still fairly critically acclaimed even in its late run. I think Dennis Franz was still getting a lot of praise. Um, okay. That is the answer I like more than anything else I've said so far. I am just naming off drama shows that lasted forever and you are the one who knows things. So you, you, you pick the, the answer. <laughs> Any more shows we haven't said that you can think of? Um, I mean, running? any of the procedurals, like, you know, like CSI, NCIS, they, right. I don't know how long they lasted, but I, I don't think that they ever really got Emmys. Right, um, I just, they've lasted long enough, I don't think, yeah. at that time, because that would have been around the time where you had, you know, Mad Men and Breaking Bad premiering. You had, at the time when they would have been in their eighth season, you also had, I don't know, prestige shows like Lost, like serialized shows around that time. And yeah. you just had like The Sopranos coming in at that mm. time too. So it's not Sopranos. Sopranos did not have eight seasons. So that's definitely okay. not it. Yeah, they, they did a, a, actually they did a six seasons with the sixth one split into two. Okay, well. So I think NYPD Blue is what I like the most out of what okay. I said. So let's just, we'll lock in NYPD Blue. That is a very good guess, but not correct. Manas? Okay, so it was nominated in its eighth or later season. Pretty much all the dramatic shows I can think of that ran for eight seasons, only ran for eight seasons. But I think I actually read about this. It's, well, okay, so in its seventh, so, but it, oh, but it also won in its 
seventh or later season. Okay, so is it the practice? Is that what you're locking in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the practice definitely did win Best Drama. I think that year had Ali McBeal winning Best Comedy Series and the practice winning Best Drama Series, both with the same showrunner, which is a fairly unprecedented feat and probably won't ever be repeated. But yeah, you know, thinking about shows that sort of peaked late in their run, it would usually be a show kind of like The Simpsons, which had a kind of early installment weirdness, right? The first few seasons look and feel very different from what people think of as a show in its prime. Yeah, so this is a show whose the, the actor people most associated with it didn't actually join the cast until season five. It's Law and Order. Sorry, I steered you away from it, James. I just really... I, I love watching the Law and Orders, but I just, I never, I barely know any of the actors. <laughs> so, or any of the, the, the award season stuff. I just knew that it was around for like 20 some odd seasons. <laughs> yeah. The, do, you, do, you, do you know offhand which year it won? It won in 1997. It's seventh season. Okay. I even had the year right. I think I said 97. Maybe I said 96. But uh, yeah, I still just... It continued to get nominations through its 12th season in that category. Very impressive. Yep. All right, David and Manus now to try and steal from James. Flynn, the only focal patient of a house episode to actually be correctly diagnosed with lupus, had what profession? Steve Valentine, the Scottish actor who portrayed him, has played characters with this profession many times, including as a villain on Monk and in Wizards of Waverly Place, the movie, and also practices his profession in real life. Magician. Locking in. All right. Sounds good to me. (laughs) And James nodded along as well. Yeah. There's a great scene in the episode where, where House is, you know, being his normal skeptical self. And he just does, you know, the standard, like, pick a card thing, shuffles up the card. And the card card lands outside the glass, right? Yeah, it lands outside of the glass with his card. It is just amazing. (laughs) Sounds like we have more than one house fan here, so that'll be interesting. I have watched that episode. I just went in one ear, not the other, apparently. Glad that that you remembered it, (laughs) Manas. Thank you. Yeah, Steve Valentine, a very fun performer to watch. And I noticed, I saw him in multiple shows, always playing a magician. And eventually it kind of clicked. And I was like, he must also be one in real life, right? Yeah. (laughs) All right. James and Manus now to try and steal from David. At least a dozen plant and animal species, including the white-eyed river martin, the panda crab, two dinosaurs, a fairy shrimp, a mantis shrimp, a prawn, a moth, a stingless bee, and three kinds of orchid, have scientific names that pay tribute to Princess Royal Sirinthorn, the sister of what currently reigning monarch. Although details of the incident are difficult to come by due to laissez majeste laws, in 2021 it was reported that this man had allegedly broken one or both of Sirendorn's ankles during a family argument. I mean, laissez majeste laws is a big thing in Thailand. Yeah, yeah, I was um, going to say it's uh, Rajira Longhorn. He's the current king of Thailand. Oh, okay. Is it. You want to lock that in? Uh, what did you say the 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 uh, name was? Uh, his name is Maha Vajira Longhorn. Okay, yeah, I mean it's I I was I was thinking it might be another one of the the Ramas in the the series, but no, I think they're all uh, done. Okay, well then, yeah, go go for it. Maha Vajira Longhorn locking in. Okay, I would I would have they're accepted. They're not all done. Rama the tenth, I believe, is his current his regnal name. Uh, I was going to say I would have accepted his. I would have accepted his regnal name, Rama the Tenth, but I would also accept Vajira Longhorn. Sure. Same guy. Also, uh, 
shout out to my friends Panarat and Pun, who are from Thailand, and Pun, whose wedding I am going to in Thailand in October. So hi. <laughs> All right. I actually have to make a note to look up the moth named after Sirendorn because I don't offhand know which one it is. Oh. All right. Yeah. But so yes. While while you are there, just don't say anything critical of the king because that does not end well. I, I will not. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, isn't the king kind of an asshole? at least compared to his father, who was a good king? I mean, the fact that he is breaking his sister's ankles suggests that yes. Right. Uh, I mean, it's not metaphorical ankle breaking on a basketball court. <laughs> it's the real deal. <laughs> no, I mean, like, isn't, he, isn't it also like a womanizer and a playboy? I mean, the thing is that when you're raised in an environment where no one is allowed to say anything bad about you under you know penalty of law, it does tend to have a corrupting effect on one's ethics. I guess. All right, so we'll finish out the round now with David and James trying to steal from Manas. What India-born author was shortlisted for the prestigious Booker Prize three times between 1980 and 1999, only to see her daughter win that award for 2006's The Inheritance of Loss? I think Inheritance of Loss is Arundhati Roy. Her mother's also... Hold on. Sorry, I, I may have jumped the gun on that. What were you going to say? Sorry, before. No, I, I was saying I, th- I thought that that was right, that it was Roy. I, I don't know which of the two is the mother and which is the daughter, but. It, it's, it's not that. I'm now, it's oh. um, the God of Small Things is Arundhati Roy. So I'm trying oh. to think of, there are a couple other Indian authors, women that are Indian authors that I can think of. It's not Jhumpa Lahiri, I'm pretty sure. There's no way she wins an award for that and not one of her better known works. Desai is another name that came to mind. And I can't remember the first name. That actually might bode well, because if there are two authors named Desai, it means I'd be less likely to remember which is which. Does that ring a bell with you as being an author, at least? It it does, yeah. I don't reckon, I mean, I I feel like I've heard of the title, but I don't know who who wrote it. Okay. Um, Desai is also like, I think an author name that I've heard of and don't know a whole lot about. So they're both in the same bin. Makes sense to me. Yeah, okay. Just got a small things. Yeah, the more I'm saying it, the more I think that is Roy. Yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah. Okay, so if you're okay with it, we'll lock in Desai. Yeah. All right, yeah. The mother is Anita Desai, the daughter, Kieran Desai. Yeah, that's correct. All right. Yeah, boy, sorry. I, I, I usually don't jump the gun on non-speed quizzes like that, but yeah, I definitely have to be more careful. <laughs> All right. So at the end of that. It came up in the first ever quiz bowl tournament I played. Hmm. No kidding. And my mom also read the inheritance of loss for her book club meeting once. Hmm. All right. So at the end of that round, these scores, I mean, I'll go back and recheck everything later, but what I have now is James in the lead at 12.0, followed by Manas at 8.2 and David at 6.2. But of course, the point values are now going up, four for a steal, three for specialist, two for bonus. So those differences could very easily get erased as we continue. All right. So now we go into the only somewhat hard round, which we will begin with David and Manas to attempt to steal from James. Okay. All right. Alexei Serebryakov stars in the authorized Russian remake of House as a doctor with what surname? 
Among the real-life holders of this surname, which means judge in German, are Hans, a data-associated avant-garde filmmaker whose Rhythmus 21 was one of the first abstract films, Gerhard, a visual artist whose photorealistic paintings sometimes feature his wife, Sabine Moritz, and Max, a composer who scored movies like Waltz with Bashir and Miss Sloan and TV programs like The Leftovers, Invasion, and the Nosedive episode of Black Mirror. The latter's composition on the nature of daylight opens and closes the film Arrival, and his reinterpretation of Vivaldi's The Four Seasons soundtracks Anthony Armstrong Jones's seduction of Princess Margaret in The Crown. A lot of information there. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, okay. Uh, so I'm guessing you have not heard of any of these other people that share a surname. Am I? Is that correct? Yeah, you'd be right in saying that. Okay. I mean, certainly we think Dada and Hans, right? There's Hans Arp, but I, I didn't know he made films. So I'm guessing it's a different Hans. Wait, who are you talking about? Right, Jean Arp or Hans Arp. Like, didn't he use those names interchangeably? Oh. Mm. But I'm saying I don't think it's him because, right, you wouldn't say Dada associate. I mean, well, just filmmaker would not be the primary word used to describe Arp. So I right. just don't think that's him. I also don't think ARP means judge in German. That doesn't seem right. Not that I know what judge in German is. <laughs> I don't either, but Hans, I would eat. Hmm. Well, if it's Russian, uh, yeah. maybe. So, what about, no, not Zimmer, because. No, Hans Zimmer is. I, just, I mean, I guess unless he's unless the composer Hans Zimmer is a descendant, it doesn't seem. Yeah. Doesn't seem likely. I don't think. Like, I think if, if Zimmerman, the name means. If that means judge man, I feel like I would have heard that at some point. And I just don't have the people named Zimmerman. I've never heard that come up. Yeah, Hans um, Zimmer is a, is a um, Christopher Nolan collaborator. He does a lot of music for Nolan's movies. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with his work. It's, and uh, if it was also Zimmer, Yogesh would have included a clue about the Vikings head coach, Mike Zimmer. I suppose that's possible. I'm not too familiar with him. Two other angles we could go on here. So one... So when I think of judge in German, I think of judgment at Nuremberg. If you could think of any German terms associated with Nuremberg, that might be helpful. The second avenue is, of course, in the U.S., house is right is right kind of derived from Holmes because Sherlock Holmes reference. Mm -hmm. So if you happen to know what Sherlock Holmes's surname is in Russian translations of the Doyle works, that could be what we should be going for. But I don't know what that is. I, I wonder if it's something to do with like, I wonder if it's also like a possibly a Jewish surname. I see one that is German derived, but is more associated with, with Judaism. Um, right. That is certainly possible. So. But then you'd have to know what the Hebrew word for judges. Yeah. Which I should, because I had to learn much of the old Testament in Hebrew and there is a book of judges. The problem is I think we called it, Shmuel, because Samuel was a character in the Book of Judges, so that does not help. Oh, okay. Uh, Judge in German. Hmm. I mean, I, I just don't think we should, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this yeah. if you've got no angles to take. So I'm, I'm trying to think of, like you said, a German name that is, what's the name Eisen mean? Like, you see that as a prefix for like Eisenstadt's. Yeah. Eisen. Eisen? I have a feeling it's going to mean something like iron or steel, and it just refers to like, you know, factory yeah. workers. But it is a name I think of as being sort of like a German-Jewish name. And it's a short name, too, which I would assume works for if you're remaking a show. It's got to have a short, catchy title. Mm -hmm. You want to just go with that, then? Because sure. I, I don't have anything else. Yep, we'll lock in Eisen.
Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know if Samuel actually appears in the book. He was a judge. I don't, I think he may, he was the last of the judges. So he gets his own books. I think he's mentioned a lot in Chronicles and the books of Samuel. Not sure if he's in the book of judges. Okay. Um, Eisen does indeed mean iron, I believe in German. Yeah. And as I said, in episode 25, Zimmermann means carpenter. Oh, that was a question about that in episode 25. All right, James. I've been staring at this for a while. I have not heard of this Russian remake. I going through clues, the Hans. I mean, yeah, the the only thing that came up, like you said, is Zimmer, which I knew was not going to be the right answer. The connection with Sherlock Holmes, I did not think of, but I, I feel like that's gonna be the best way in here but i just i don't i'm not a sherlock holmes guy so i don't i would never have heard of that <sighs> gerhardt max and hans oh there's an artist that i've heard i think he's an artist i mean there have been several things that i've come up with that are like this is their first name but i do not think they are an artist gerhardt richter i think was an artist because Naturally, about three quarters of quiz bowl matches that are not science, I am my head down just listening for keywords that I might recognize. And as a scientist, Richter is one of those words. So I, I think I have to go with Richter. All right. And uh, even though your guest did not make the earth shake, it is correct. <laughs> Very nice. Nice. Yeah, I think for me, not, yeah, as a non-German speaker, I think if, if I were presented with this question, probably Max would have been the way in for me because of all his associations with TV and film. But yeah, Gerhard, good one too. So uh, Yogesh, I'm, I'm not going to say any more in the chance that it may come up, but uh, Hans was the first name that I had the instant connection for, for uh, one of my categories. <laughs> <laughs> all right, James and Manas now to try and steal from David. Entomologist Terry Irwin named several beetle species within the Agra genus for celebrities, including a Schwarzeneggeri, which has markedly developed middle femora in males, and a Catabellae, which shares its habitat with sleek jaguars that apparently reminded Irwin of jag star Catherine Bell. Irwin also christened two species in that genus for what two actresses who appeared in movies that dominated the 1998 domestic box office. Irwin claimed he was attempting to use the titles of those films as a warning about the fate of the rainforest if it is not preserved. Was that the year like Armageddon came out or some, something about the end of the world? Yeah. Um, well, it's two actresses, so. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. So there is but it would be two stars of, or of two separate movies. Yeah. Who appeared in movies that dominated the 1998 box office. I guess it doesn't technically have to be two separate movies, but it it sounds like it is. I'll just um, confirm that, that yes, it's two okay. separate movies. Okay. I was only four years old in 1998. Yeah, so. I, I was six. Okay. That was around, I, I think that was a year after Star Wars came out, because I think that was, I, I went to see that on my fifth birthday. That was 1998. Do you know what Best Picture was that year? Uh... Or best actress, because I—that's an absolute black hole for me—is is Oscars. Yeah, I'm totally blanking on this. Terry Irwin named. Oh wait, the fate of the rainforest. Shit. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it the titles of the problem. movies are going to be something about destruction or burning or. Uh, do you know if Medicine Man came out that year? Because I've seen that. I just don't know when it came out with uh, Sean I, Connery and. I don't think so. The the title of the film being a warning. I don't think Medicine Man is. I mean, I mean, it could be. Well, because no, like, Sean Connery goes to the rainforest to search for a cure for a disease. He's a scientist. Okay. So what? What are the? Um, what? Sorry. He's accompanied by a woman in that movie, but uh, I can't remember either yeah. the character or the actress's name. Okay. I mean, at, at worst case, we can name two actresses who starred in a lot of things in the nineties. And I, yeah, I just. Oh, uh, maybe maybe Helen Hunt could be one. Okay. But then who would the other be? I mean, that's a nice short last name that could combine easily with something else in a non-terribly long genus or species name. Yeah, Hunt could be one. And Meg Ryan? Oh, yeah, maybe. That's another short name. I, I don't really have a lot here. So if, if, you, don't, if you don't think you're going to come up with anything, then we can just lock in Hunt and Ryan. Yeah, we can just lock those in. Okay, locked in Hunt and Ryan. All right. That's an interesting connection to the pre or a couple episodes ago, I guess, when I talked about the song Iris, because in 1998, Meg Ryan was, of course, lighting up the box office with the massive hit movie City of Angels. <laughs> oh, wait. <Very> no one... <laughs> yes, no one saw that movie, but everyone lived, loved the soundtrack. All right, uh, David. But you asked for two actresses, so I agree that Liv Tyler is one of the actresses I'm going to go with, because I agree that Armageddon was a very high grossing movie in 1998 and fits this clue perfectly. I, I don't know the bug actual from the bug angle for sure. Uh, I have heard of Agra Schwarzenegger eye, but I, there are so many of these types of names that it's impossible to keep track of all of them. Uh, Terry Irwin famously did an analysis of like the number of different species of beetles he found in a single tree. And, extra and if, if you extrapolate from there, you can say there are literally millions of just undescribed beetle species that exist currently that we have not discovered yet. And that's just the beetles, not all the other insects. So it's a very interesting kind of uh, analysis of diversity. All that is to say, there are so many beetles. I, I know a very, very small percentage of them by name. Uh, so as far as films go, the number one film at the box office domestically in 98, I'm pretty sure was Saving Private Ryan. Not that many women in the cast to select from there. In fact, I can't name a single woman who was in that film. I'm sure there were a few, but I can't name any. <laughs> So other than Liv Tyler, I don't like this because I think Deep Impact came out in 1997. So I'm thinking of other disaster films, Deep Impact, Dante's Peak, Volcano. Those just, not only did those not come out in 98, I don't, hmm, hold on a second. 98 dominated the 90 domestic box office. Technically, technically a film released in December 97 could dominate the 98 box office. Two such films did. Tomorrow Never Dies, of course, James Bond connection, and of course, Titanic, which, because it released in December, made the bulk of its money in 98. All right. Titanic on its own does not indicate, you know, a warning about the fate of the rainforest, but obviously anybody who knows the premise of Titanic can understand that it's about a huge disaster. And, you know, certainly sea levels rising, resulting in things going underwater is one of the predictions based on our models of climate change. Given that I feel very confident that all the other disaster films I named besides Armageddon are not really, were not released in 98 and were released early enough, they could not have 
made a lot of money in 98. I think I gotta hope that Titanic is the other film. And so I'll say Liv Tyler and I'll say Kate Winslet as the other actor. That's interesting. Yeah, I let you you pulled out tomorrow never dies. I met the screenwriter Bruce Firestein, and I I asked him if it was true, like the the story that I'd heard about where the title Tomorrow Never Dies came from, and he confirmed he was apparently a fan of the Beatles song Tomorrow Never Knows, and so he when he wrote the screenplay he titled it Tomorrow Never Lies because it's about a newspaper called Tomorrow that makes up its headlines. At some point, someone just mistyped that as Tomorrow Never Dies, and it stuck. Oh wow. Okay. Ah. <laughs> Yeah, but um, yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, dominating the box office, a movie whose uh, title is kind of synonymous with hubris and impending disaster. I was trying to lead you toward Titanic. It is Liv Tyler and Kate Winslet. Oh, that's great. Because one of the few things I know better than entomology is movie box office. So it was going to really hurt if I had gotten that one wrong from both angles of things I allegedly know. Yeah, it is interesting, though, you were like, there's too many of these to keep track of. And in my head, I was like, well, you did pick it as a category. So. <laughs> <laughs> to, to pull back the curtain a bit, my category was interesting taxonomic names. And you explicitly right. said that because of, you know, arachnophobia, you wouldn't be dealing with too much from the, you know, the creepy crawly world. So I wasn't expecting any, any entomology questions. But yes, I did sign up for this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. I mean, my phobia, as I said, kind of uh, limited to, to spiders. I'm not really that concerned with bugs or with the insects in general. I mean, I obviously, you know, wouldn't want to be surrounded by them. But, uh, but in that sense, actually, I've come to kind of appreciate spiders because they do keep the insect population down. So. They are helpful in that regard. Yeah. All right. David and James now to try and steal from Manas. British poet Stephen Spender crossed the Atlantic and served as U.S. Poet Laureate in the mid-60s. He was succeeded in that post by what American, who, despite a 1966 National Book Award for Poetry for Buck Dancer's Choice, remains best known for an atypically prosaic work published in 1970 and adapted into a Best Picture Oscar-nominated film two years later. Modern Library placed that work 42nd on its list of the top 100 English-language novels of the 20th century. We're looking for the author here. Okay, yeah. Sorry, I need a minute to read Typically prosaic work published in 1970, adapted into a Best Picture Oscar-nominated film, 1972, so it could be 72 or 73 Oscars. Yeah. I wonder if that's when Love Story came out. Oh, no, actually, no, that can't be, because, right, wasn't famously the film for Love Story released before the book came out? Like, he was writing the book, he wrote a screenplay of the book at the same time, and just based on scheduling, the publication came afterwards. I'm actually... If that, that sounds right to you, then yeah, yeah, we can pull that out. The author of that, by the way, is Eric Segal, oh, who I don't okay. think of as a poet. So I also don't like it for that reason. I met someone once who knew, who knew Eric Segal as a classic scholar and was surprised to learn about his novel and screenplay. Oh. Interesting. What year did the Poseidon Adventure come out, the original? All right. I just, I happen to know the author of that is Paul Gallico because it came up as a difficult question in an OQL match recently. I know nothing else about Paul Gallico. So if it came out that he was a former poet laureate, that would not surprise me. What would surprise me if it's the 42nd English language novel of the 20th century, (laughs) you know? Obviously I see 42, I think Douglas Adams, but that doesn't fit any of the other clues here. Isn't like... Something like A River Runs Through It, like an Oscar-nominated film that was like just a book by somebody who was not known for writing books like that. That's possible. 
I don't know who wrote Yeah, me neither. So even if it's right, we can't guess it. Yeah. Who wrote River Runs Through? I'm sure I've come across it. Like, the first thing that came out was um, Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, but I believe that's the yearling is what she wrote. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could have written both, but I just, yeah. And of course, right, there was a film adaptation, I'm sure. So, okay. Nominated. It was, uh, it was nominated. It doesn't say it won, so it probably didn't win. Right. So the film's in um, 1972. Like, 72 I think, or 73. Uh, right. The Godfather was the best picture of the films of 1972. So it's a film that came out the same year as The Godfather and lost to The Godfather. Yeah. And that was, I think that was a famously very, you know, like the other nominees were worthy of being best picture clearly in other yeah. years, but. But if The Godfather right. had to win. Yeah. yeah it's not um, the French connection. It might be Chinatown, but I don't know who wrote the book Chinatown if it was based in a book, so that's not going to help. Yeah. yeah. The side adventure, I'm not even sure, was set in 1972. And it just seems so weird for it to have been 42nd on the top novels of the 20th century. But it is very prose-based. Definitely not, not, you wouldn't call it poetry by any means. Yeah. Uh, so a Poet Laureate, was there anyone in like, I guess the, when in the mid six? so... Who's who read poems at like presidential inaugurations? I don't even know if that was a thing, a tradition before Maya Angelou. Didn't Robert Frost read something at JFK's inauguration? Oh, now that you said that, it sort of rings a bell. So yeah, you, you might be right about it being a, a tradition going back that far. Well, I, so but, I don't but again, think it's, it was but a it's tradition, but he, it was notable that he did it because it wasn't a thing then. Right. Can you um, name any other poet laureate? So I can name Robert Pinsky was a former poet laureate. I don't know if he was in the 60s. And I've never heard of him adapting, a, you know, being, like, again, we think of any poet we think of is probably not this person because they're best known for writing a book. Yeah. Actually, mm-hmm. not really a book, but a work of prose. So it could be an article, you know, like if, like a George Plimpton-esque article that gets adapted into a film. I can't think of any George Plimpton articles adapted into a film. If you look at the last sentence, it does say novel. Oh, you're right. Sorry. Yeah, it is a novel. It is a novel. All right. I'm trying to be cognizant of time here. And I just like, if we were on a track somewhere. If we were were going, yeah. Yeah. So I'll just, we'll just say Gallico and be done with it. Locking in Gallico. All right. Yeah. Poseidon Adventure was 72. You had the right year. And I think Gallico was primarily a sports writer. So he was kind of writing outside his usual genre when he wrote that novel. So good guess, but not correct. Pastamanis. So... I now know of two U.S. poet laureates. The other is Joseph Brodsky, but I know he was way too late for this question. And he was also Russian. So maybe, who's even active at that time? Uh, into a, so it was, if it was nominated for, nominated for Best Picture in 1972, well, no, it would have, the movie would have had to come out in 72 because then it would have been nominated at the 73 Oscars. But if I may, I think the question, it says it was adapted into a film two years later. So it was adapted for a film released in 72, right. but then the nomination occurred the following year. For the right, film. in 72, that's what I said. Right. So I think you, just, just so, you know, we're clear on the semantics. Uh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna guess because why not? Is it George Santayana? 
Okay, yeah. So you had the right, yeah, the release year or the eligibility year actually was was 72. I think one of the nominees that year was a foreign film. So I think it had been released originally in 71, but its eligibility year was 72. And I think, yeah, of the, aside from The Godfather, which did win, three of the other four nominees were based on novels. I think Cabaret was based on a stage musical, which I guess was based on a, other things. Yeah, I guess it did originate in literature. But yeah, Chinatown was a couple, Chinatown competed against Godfather 2, and that was actually an original screenplay. It won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. But the other nominees that year, Sounder was based on a fairly famous novel. The Emigrants, I think, was based on like a Swedish novel. And the other nominee, set on a river, although not a river runs through it. It's called Deliverance. It was based on a book by James Dickey. Oh, Okay. Well, I got to say, I'm kind of glad we didn't hit on Deliverance because I didn't know who wrote it. And then it would have just been like, we know for sure we're wrong, as opposed to at least having a small glimmer of hope that we might be right. <laughs> All right, David and Manas now to try and steal from James. The Hikaru Nakamura associated meme, I literally don't care, was spawned by a conflict between Nakamura and U.S.-born Canadian Grandmaster Eric Hansen, who runs what YouTube channel? The name of this channel is perhaps not unrelated to Hansen's overall physique and persona, which Canadian magazine The Walrus described by noting, He is six foot one, long, lean, and muscular, and has a taste for Hugo Boss blazers. His handsome yet triangular head led one online commenter to describe him as, quote, a hybrid between James Bond and a Toblerone bar. <laughs> well, I feel like it's Slenderman. When you say you feel, is that you act? You have knowledge? Is that just coming from the description? Just from the description, I think it. I think it's Slenderman. Um. Okay, give me a second. Just I, I, have, I have nothing better at this point, and I like I like the way that fits. Let me just. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I was hoping for something that maybe more directly connects to chess somehow, but I don't have anything better. I mean, certainly I think of triangular shaped head. I think of pyramid head from the Silent Hill games, but. I think if Pyramid Head was the answer, Head would not have been part of the question. So with no actual knowledge, I'm fine with going with your gut and saying Slenderman. Sounds good to me. Okay, Slenderman locked in. James? I hope we can stop laughing at that description long enough. <laughs> that is a beautiful quote. I love it. It is an amazing quote. Um, so Eric Hansen, Amon Hamilton, and Yasser Sarawan are the chess bras. And that is my final answer. <laughs> so, so what's the channel called? The Chess Bra. Yeah, yeah. All right, James and Manas now to try and steal from David. Thanks to the magic of freeze frames, internet denizens were able to identify many of the Warner Brothers' own characters who turn up as Easter eggs in the background of shots in Space Jam A New Legacy. For instance, it's now been confirmed that Louise Van Wienendahl, formerly a contestant on season three of the Australian version of The Voice, portrayed a figure of what type? imported from a 1971 horror film based on a nonfiction book by Aldous Huxley. Nonfiction by Aldous Huxley. Oh, nonfiction. Um, okay. He did what? The the Doors of Perception, Chrome Yellow, and Brave New World, obviously, but that wasn't nonfiction, I hope. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not yet. Not yet. He, he wrote something just called Island, I think, or The Island, that that was also fiction. Uh, what figure? What type of, like, figures that are in horror films that are also possibly a Looney Tunes? Uh, oh, just Warner Brothers own. So, yeah. and it could be, like, one of the Animaniacs, but that's not something from Aldous Huxley nonfiction. What if it's, like, a robot or something? Yeah, I mean, his, his stuff, what, uh, but it's nonfiction. In 1971, what robots could we have? 
Yeah, you're right. A figure. Um, like a, a horror film, like figures could be like a vampire, a werewolf, like a what? A witch. But wait, this bit. Okay. But it also has to be a Warner Brothers character that's right. that yeah. figure is. So something that's the intersection between Warner Brothers and horror films. So like the, I mean, it could be like, oh no, but also nonfiction. Like I was thinking maybe it was like Marvin the Martian and it was like an alien, but that's not, again, not nonfiction yet. Um. <laughs> what if it's like, well, wait. Oh, okay. So it's a, so it's a figure from the film adaptation of a, of a nonfiction book by Aldous Huxley. Yeah. So what horror films even came out in 1971? A little bit before my time there. Um, I guess I should be happy that this did not come up when you were discussing 1972 films in the previous question. Wow, I, I don't know. I, we should absolutely be able to come up with some guess, like some sort of thing that would be both a Warner Brothers character and appear in a horror film. Like the fact that it's a woman playing it makes me think that witch could be possible, but it doesn't. it definitely doesn't have to be. Wait a minute. It says formerly a contestant on season three of the Australian version of The Voice. Yeah. Maybe that's important too. You can correct me if I'm wrong on this, Yogesh, but on a different thing of yours that I did, there was like things in parentheses were explicitly not part of the meaningful stuff of the question. Is that the case here? I mean, that's not a hard and fast rule. Okay. Here. So. Totally. Robot, alien, vampire, werewolf, witch, wizard, like things that could appear in both a Warner Brothers thing and a horror movie. I probably should have seen that movie. I wonder, maybe it is like robots and like it was non, that chrome yellow was like nonfiction, but it was somehow about like chrome and that, I, I don't know, it, it isn't spelled the same way as the metal, though. It's C-R-O-M-E, and it's, like, referring to a, a house. I um, mean, everything is, everything is chrome in the future. Yeah, and do we want to just go with robot for that? I'd, yeah, why not? Robot is our answer, lock it in. Fairly decent guess, but not correct. Pass to David. I am pretty excited if I'm right about this, because when I submitted this category of LeBron James to Yogi's figure, okay, He's definitely going to ask something about his filmography. There's no way he's going to watch Space Jam A New Legacy for content. As much as as knowledgeable as films as you are, I could not see yourself putting yourself through that. But if you've read the same articles I did, then you would have also read how ridiculous it is that Warner Brothers just included all of this, all of their old IP, even R-rated films that are not appropriate for children for a kid's film. And I actually don't remember the name of the film but it's a Ken Russell film about like evil or scary nuns. And I believe that they found basically a dancing nun in the background that was supposed to be one of the nuns from this Ken Russell film. So there were tons of other Easter eggs too. This could be something else, but I feel pretty good locking in nun. Yeah, I mean, I'm, as a huge Ken Russell fan, that, that would have leaped out at me anyway. I think actually the film was originally rated X at a time when that didn't have the connotation of pornography. But definitely, yeah, very, very adult aimed, very intense graphic and based on a historical incident. I think the book is it's referred to as like the Devils of Loudon, where uh, a priest named Urban Grandier was burned at the stake for supposedly inducing some kind of possession in these nuns. And yeah, uh, 
the film is called The Devils. And yeah, the, the character, I guess one of the possessed nuns with the notable like black cross on her uh, habit. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. David and James, to try and steal from Manus. You may want pencil and paper for this. Just a warning. Okay, let me go grab some. Got a piece of scrap paper over here. All right, I'm ready. All right. So. All right. All right. Named for a late 17th slash early 18th century monk who studied it, Grandi's series is an infinite series that has defied all attempts to get it to converge to a single sum. The series, defined as the summation from n equals zero to infinity of negative one to the n power, is usually written as one minus one plus one minus one plus one minus one, etc., which can be made to look like it converges to different values depending on how you group it. Interestingly, however, if you take the Cesaro sum of the Grandi series, defined as the limit as n goes to infinity of the sequence of arithmetic means of the first n partial sums of the series, you will in fact get a finite value. What is that value? Note it's the same value you would get if you applied the formula for the sum of a convergent geometric series to Grandi series, even though technically that formula should not apply because Grandi series is divergent. So the, the geometric series formula, isn't that like just one over one plus N or one over one minus N or R, sorry, not N. And R is the ratio between successive terms. And in this, it's negative one would be the ratio between the successive terms. I don't know if I've ever learned this. I've heard of this series, not by this name. I'm sure in like, you know, I I took AP Calc and I'm sure this may have come up conceptually, but I I have no knowledge here. I was really hoping we could answer the limit does not exist, but (laughs) Yogesh does say that there is a finite value. So we we should guess. The limit does not exist is not a finite value, unfortunately. So uh, let's let's try and do this from the the first the mean of the first n partial sums to see if it at least makes sense that way. So the the first partial sum is one. The second partial sum is zero. The third partial sum is one. The fourth partial sum is zero. Yeah. So it just alternates ones and zeros. And if you're going to take the average of alternate ones and zeros as the number of pairs of that goes to infinity, the answer is one half. Okay. I have nothing to add. That sounds great. One half. Is that your what you're locking in? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as you said, the, the, the formula for the conversion geometric series is one over one minus R. So in this case, if you, if you try to apply that, which you technically shouldn't be able to, because it really only applies when R is between negative one and one non-inclusive of the endpoints, but you would get one over one minus negative one, which is one half. If you try doing the partial, it's actually going to be the first, or yeah, it's going to be like... I guess, yeah, one, zero, one, zero, one, zero, and yeah. If you make a sequence where the nth term of the sequence is the average of those first n partial sums, so one, one-half, two-thirds, one-half, three-fifths, one-half, and so on, the even terms will all be one-half. The odd terms will steadily decrease heading toward one-half. So the limit as n goes to infinity will be one half. The fun part is to ask the question of how can a sequence whose terms are all integers sum to a non-integer value? That's something mathematicians oh, yeah. have, scr- have scratched their head about for, for many centuries. But uh, yeah, this could potentially have been a really torny question, but you've cut right to the heart of it. Very good. Nice job, James. All right, David and Manas now to try and steal from James. 
Gomesa, G-O-M-E-I-S-A, is the less famous of the two brighter-than-fourth-magnitude stars in what IAU-designated constellation? All right. Do you know what Gomesa means in a mythological or historical context? No, I just, I mean, all I can really say that would be of any help is that Gomesa sounds Japanese, so maybe it's oh. a Japanese-named constellation. The problem is, aren't all the IAU-designated ones the ones derived from, like, Greek and Latin names? Like, the kind of the 88 constellations that are canonical? Like, obviously, right, Japanese Japanese mythology has constellations derived, you know, from Japanese deities, I'm sure. But I don't think any of those cross over. I think it's still very Eurocentric. Really? Okay. Yeah. doesn't mean that the star. it's true the stars could be named after things from other pantheons or other mythologies. But as far as the names of the constellations, so my hope is that obviously, like if we knew that Gomesa was the parent or child of a certain mythological figure, then we would guess that, right? All right. And presumably if we knew the name of the more famous one, this would be easy. Yeah. So I guess, like what are some constellations where we can name one and only one famous star? It might be a helpful, as far as like narrowing down our answer space. Gomesa could also be, like you said, it could be ja- it could be the Japanese word for a creature or a being that is part of the like, like for example, I'm thinking of like how you know Leo, Regulus, I think is the brightest star in Leo, and Regulus means king, and so that's kind of lion being king. Okay, exactly. If Gomesa means lion in some other language, then we would be very confident it was Leo. Wait a minute, if it's Gomesa is the less famous of the two brighter than fourth magnitude stars. Well, I are the stars. Well, no, they're not stars, but like, aren't Castor and Pollux the two twins who represented in the Gemini constellation? I think that's correct. So, with Gemini? But, well, I don't know their brightness. I assume they're of similar brightness because they're sort of twins, which would mean that Gomez would be the third most famous of the bunch because we know Castor and Pollux. It oh. is possible that, you know, Castor is not very bright. And so Pollux is number one, Gomez is number two, because Castor's not bright enough. But I just, that doesn't, doesn't feel right. I feel like the question would have been worded differently had that been the case. Yeah. I feel like it's going to be like, we're gonna, we, we should be looking for a play, a constellation where we only know the name of one star. Right? Mm. I mean, if I'm wrong, I apologize. I obviously, I did a similar thing with dissuading James off of Law and Order. I just, is there an anagram maybe here we should be looking for? Do you see the names of any other stars and if you could anagram from Gomesa? No, I, I don't. Hmm. Or what about, wait, well, what if it's, well, what if it's something else that's paired like Pisces or I think. Oh, I see what you're saying. Like there's right. Uh, yeah. So, right. There's two fish and we know the yeah. name of one star. I actually don't have any stars in Pisces, but <clears throat> I, I see what you're saying. And we just, for one reason or another, the lesser known of the pair is, is this. Mm-hmm. Um, now we open ourselves up to the Schrodinger's cat situation again, where the one we guess will probably be the wrong one. Between Pisces and Gemini, I would rather guess Pisces, but we can think of other things that are that are paired as well. What else is paired though? Is is Aries paired by any chance? I mean, I think Aries is just the ram. I don't think it's supposed to be more than one oh. ram. Yeah, there are certainly constellations that have connections like Orion and Scorpio. I wouldn't call those paired though. And I think okay. like we, I can name the star, like Orion's belt is Alnitak, Mintaka, and Alna something else. Presumably those are more famous. Also, right, Scorpio, I believe, 
might be Antares is in Scorpio, but I think there's Arabic names for the stars, the, the brightest stars in Scorpio. Oh. Uh, and we, we can extend beyond just zodiac signs too, which I'm trying to think of ones, but. But I don't, I don't really know of any non yeah. zodiac. Draco is Gomesa, a famous dragon from mythology. Hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like we're not heading down a track and I don't want to waste time just trying to brainstorm every constellation because that, that's going to be, we're not going to be narrowing it down. Do you want to go with Pisces then? Sure. We'll lock in Pisces. All right. Yeah. I think it's fairly common for stars to have names derived from Arabic. Yeah. And uh, I think Gomesa is derived from Arabic. I don't really think it gives anything away to say what it means, but I'll, I'll hold that information back till James has had his shot. Okay. So there were two ways I, I think into this that could potentially be useful. One was the one you were talking about, you both were talking about, which is the like, do you have one star that is like the one thing everyone knows about this constellation? And then there's the other way that I was thinking of, which is like, what if it just doesn't have any stars really? Like something like Cassiopeia that only has four stars that you can really identify with your naked eye? So my, that's what it, my, my thought is on the other route. On the first route, I'm thinking Polaris in Ursa Major. And honestly, I, 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 I wanted to, to cram for something last night for this. And instead of cramming Constellation Alpha and Beta stars, I just watched clips of House. And it appears I chose poorly. Um, but <laughs> which one of these would I rather go with? I think that Ursa Major is the more likely answer, so I'm going to go with that. Okay, Polaris is in Ursa Minor, right? Oh, oof. Was Ursa Minor the answer? No, it wasn't. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm okay now. I, I hope Ursa Major is not the answer. But your, your thought process, what if it's one that has, you know, very few visible stars? Because, yeah, like, I, I have always just been fascinated by the fact that there's a constellation with only two visible stars. Because I'm like, why do you call it a constellation, you know, if it's just two? And in my head, I just refer to it as the exclamation point, because that's what it always looks like to me in the diagram. <laughs> just one bright star and one less bright one and a line connecting them. But yeah, the, the other star in it is called Procyon. As listeners to episode 23 might recall, it's the main star in Canis Minor. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, that's... Very interesting. Like, again, if, if I had known that there was a constellation with only two stars, that's a great logical yeah. pathway to go down. I just, for the same reason you said, I would never have thought that. Why would there be a two-star constellation? Wait, did you say uh, Canis Minor? Canis Minor, yes. Yeah, Alpha Canis Minoris is Procyon, Beta Canis Minoris is Gomesa, which means the bleary-eyed one in Arabic. Oh, okay. All right, James and Manus to try and steal from David. A member of a prominent family of thespians who began his career acting in TV shows like The White Shadow and The Master, Tim Van Patten transitioned behind the camera and earned Emmy nods for helming The Sopranos episodes, Amour Fu, Whoever Did This, Long-Term Parking, and Members Only. He also co-authored the story of the classic Pine Barrens episode with What Screenwriter, a decade or so before winning an Emmy for directing the season two finale of this man's series, Boardwalk Empire. Coincidentally, this man's surname appears in the title of the series premiere of Game of Thrones, which Van Patten also directed. I swear I did not intend to create a Game of Thrones theme to this episode, but it happens. The series premiere? Oh my god, that's like one of the episodes I actually watched. Is, was it like a, 
a feast for something or is that like one of the book titles it's one of the that's the first book title i think oh, okay okay well what is the rest of this question um the prominent family of thespians never heard of those tv shows oh who directed, who created boardwalk empire right yeah like i feel like this is a very well-known thing that I just don't know. David's bursting over there. Yeah, no, he's he's muted himself because he he's he feels like at any moment he's just going to yell the answer. And he also has to be careful enough that I will not be able to hear it from Texas. <laughs> what, I, what I'm actually fe feeling is that at any moment you're going to just somehow figure it out and that's going to really hurt me, but... <laughs> um... Boardwalk Empire, like that's a. Oh big wait, maybe it. No, wait. Well, this man's surname. Well, what is? I don't even know what I'm saying here. There's no way that like his surname is like Stark or something from the uh, the series, yeah. is it? Um, it appears in the title of the. It's not. It's not snow, is it? Oh wait, the the title or the first episode is just like winter is coming, right? Oh, yeah, I think that. Like, maybe his name is Winter? Yeah, why not? Let's go for it. Okay, um, our answer is Winter. <laughs> so, I was right about one thing. <laughs> <laughs> I had thy hand in front of my face because I knew I wouldn't be able to keep a straight face if you just landed on Winter, and you did, and my hand was in front of my <laughs> face, which was good because I don't think I had a straight face underneath it. I think at the same time, around the same time, actually, like the showrunner of Castle was named Terrence Paul Winter, but that's a different guy. From the oh, yeah. Yeah, well done. I, I had a feeling you'd get it from the game because I don't watch Game of Thrones and I had heard, I, I knew about Winter being, uh, like I knew it was either the winds of winter or winter is coming. So, but I also knew from Boardwalk Empire. Actually, uh, I don't know if this is going to be a bonus you had planned, but I'll just say it right now. The director of that episode, Pine Barrens, was Warrock Empire star Steve Buscemi. And that was before he was cast on the show as a, in a lead role in a later season. He was just, I don't know how it happened, but he got involved and he directed Pine Barrens. So yeah, it was a, definitely a classic episode. Yes. He also directed, I think, in Camelot, the episode referenced in the previous question. That actually was not, not the bonus for this question. That actually was going to be the bonus for the next question in the next round. Oh. <laughs> But um, but that's okay. What was I going to say? Yeah, so, so you know, people, there was a very small writing staff on The Sopranos, but yet the people on it, you know, went on to create other shows. Matthew Weiner made Mad Men, which was a huge success. Terrence Winter, Boardwalk Empire. And then the two guys who, uh, I'm blanking on their names now, but yeah, the guys who created Blue Bloods, which is now in its 12th season. And was, at least in terms of duration and number of episodes, I guess the most successful series made by a Sopranos writing alum, although not the Actually, most acclaimed. A lot of Blue Bloods. I, would, I, should, I should have brought that up on the Law and Order question, but... Um. That's okay. I would have... I still would have shot you down. I, I, I guarantee Blue Bloods has not won an Emmy for yeah, that. I, I doubt it. It's just a, yeah, it's a fun thing. It's, it is, it's one for, uh, yeah, most beloved by 70-year-olds, so... Yeah. All right, David and James now to try and steal from Manas. Haley Dean, a former prosecutor turned marriage counselor slash therapist, is the protagonist of a series of mystery novels by Nancy Grace. Yes, that Nancy Grace. Oh. 
Since 2016, who has played Haley Dean in multiple telefilms that aired on the Hallmark Movies and Mysteries channel? Among this woman's more famous TV roles are a teacher in an early 20th century Appalachian village, the younger sister of a boy with Down syndrome, and a medical student stabbed to death by a schizophrenic patient. Our absent friend, 80s animation buff Nolan Werner, would no doubt want me to point out that in her younger days, she voiced Daphne in A Pup Named Scooby-Doo, Molly in Tasmania, which I believe was an animated series built around Taz, the Tasmanian devil, and Roxanne in a Goofy movie. Oh. Honest, did you, you, when you said oh earlier there, did you have some knowledge about the... Uh... You're, you're working with James, uh, James on this. Oh, yeah. sorry. My mistake. So... Yeah. I, have watched, I, I watched the child. I watched a pup named Scooby-Doo. And I even see a few episodes of Tasmania. I'm trying to hear their voice, but since she was much younger, I don't think it's going to help. Yeah. Um, okay. As far as, I will say this. So Lacey Chabert did voice work. I know she's done voice work like in the Wild Thornberries. And I believe she has been, she has definitely starred in some Hallmark or Lifetime films okay. lead role. The question is, do any of these match Party of Five? Because if they don't, then it can't be, like, it can't be her. I don't think there's any way. If, if Yogesh is going on the route of cluing the roles without giving the names of the shows, one of these should be Party of Five. Unless one of the characters in Party of Five had Down syndrome, it just doesn't feel... Yeah, that, I, I don't think that that's going to be a, you know, fringe part of the movie. Okay. Um, Other women that star in Hallmark and Lifetime films, like I think like Sarah Michelle Gellar does that now, Charisma Carpenter. All right, TV roles. What are some TV roles that take place in the past? Like 20th century Appalachian Village. That's too late for Little House. 20th century. Yeah. um, 1910s or 20s or... Yeah, I just, and can you name any TV shows or TV movies where a character is a boy with Down syndrome? And then um, the medical students, like, wait, wait, we did, had a Scrubs they, question on our last game. I mean, didn't uh, they, like, on, uh, on, uh, like, Sesame Street, didn't they have uh, kids with various challenges? Like, I know they had a girl with autism. I don't know if they had a boy with Down syndrome. They probably did, but I, I doubt that'd be considered her more famous TV role. I mean, can you name any child actor on Sesame Street that went on to do other things? That's that's a good like, point. Like, they exist. We don't know them by name. They're presumably not famous enough. Yeah. All right. Again, I feel like, I, I just because I'm trying to be aware of time, and I, I feel like we've kind of just come to a halt. I've named a few actresses in Hallmark and Lifetime films, and we just got to pick one of them. Do you have any other I, no, I just go down? Yeah, like if, if I assume the students, this isn't in house, right? Uh, if you were, you would have recognized it. It's possible that that meds, like it's not a medical show. It's like a show about people with mental illness. And then that she's oh, like, a, yeah. you know, a supporting character that gets killed off early on. Or it's a TV movie. And, you know. Could be a TV movie, yeah. yeah. I mean, Chris McCarpenter was in Buffy, right? Like it could be, I don't know. I don't think she was on the show in forever. I think she, that may have been them killing her off. Okay. Uh, I, it's my favorite guess compared to Lacey Chabert and Sarah Michelle Gellar because I feel like I know their careers better. Okay. Uh, yeah, The Wild Thornberries is the show that Lacey Chabert did a voice on. Her brother, Donnie, definitely was crazy. I don't think they would say he had Down syndrome. Oh, no, he, he, was, he was a wild child. Like, he yeah. was just found in nature having never socialized with humans. 
Um, he was not, he had, I mean, there, there were many things wrong with him, but not that. Okay. Um, All right. Then we'll just, we'll, we'll lock in Carpenter and hope for the best. All right. Yeah. I think, I think her character continued on to the, the spinoff Angel. So I don't think she was killed off in Buffy, but I don't, I don't know exactly. I don't, I don't know too much about her career. I think she was a Laker girl at some point. Maybe I'm just thinking of her character on Veronica Mars, who was described as a former Laker girl. I'm not sure. Anyway, pass to Manus. Well, so you wouldn't have said Veronica Mars if it was Christian Bell, so I know it's not Christian Bell now. Oh, fuck, that show is even, the show is literally, like, it's, no, it's literally called Haley Dean Mysteries. But, uh, um, Appalachian Village. No, oh, it's, um, if I could, uh, a goofy movie. So, I think I saw, like, 10 minutes of that. So not long enough for Roxanne to enter. But Linda Cardellini had a big presence in the Scooby-Doo universe. Well, she played Velma in the live action adaptation, so it's not her. Sarah Michelle Gellar, as you pointed out, David, was in the live action Scooby-Doo movies as Daphne. The younger sister of a boy with the Down syndrome? Oh, in a TV show. Hmm. And the younger sister of a boy with Down syndrome. So this is more serious stuff, which I didn't really get into until recently. But I I know that Kimberly Williams Paisley has a big presence on Hallmark in general. So I'll say her. All right. Yeah. And I just well, okay. I'll 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 finish up this question first. So basically, the 20th Century Appalachian Village was a show called Christie, not that well remembered now, except I think Pine Daly won an Emmy for her supporting role. The Boy with Down Syndrome, that was a pretty groundbreaking series in its time, kind of a landmark for representation. An actor who actually did have Down Syndrome, Chris Burke, played the boy. Too Close for Comfort? Is that what that it was, was called Life Goes On. Yeah. And I think, and this actress was actually Emmy nominated for her role on that. But then I think in, in seasons five and six of ER, she came in and didn't quite click with the cast, but she was given a very, very memorable and powerful death scene. So that was the medical show. Her name is Kelly Martin. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I've seen her in anything. All right. And I realize I forgot to give. So before closing out this round, I will give David a bonus for the previous question, which was stolen from him. Okay. So we were talking about Tim Van Patten. In a rare foray into comedy, Van Patten earned a 2004 Emmy nomination in Best Directing in a Comedy Series for the series finale of what much-loved sitcom? Ooh, okay. That was around the time of Arrested Development, but obviously it was not. I think this. I think what they thought was the series finale was 2006, and then even then it got rebooted or it got the extra seasons on Netflix. So it's probably not that. Much, I wonder if much loves a clue there is just saying it's a, you know, cult classic or cult favorite that did not do well in the ratings. Oh boy. So it's around the time of, I'm thinking of like one season wonders. There's, I think Andy Richter, speaking of Richter, Andy Richter controls the universe was a one season, maybe like shortened second season that got a lot of critical acclaim, but kind of flopped. Uh, Of course it could just be a long running, like, you know, ninth season or later thing that and maybe i should go with that as opposed to going for a cult classic because i think the ones i've named don't fit the timeline okay so as far as classic shows that ended in 2004 i think friends ended in 2004 everybody loves raymond by then around that time too yeah i'll just say friends 
All right. Yeah. So 2004, there were a lot of series ending there. And I was living in England at the time with American students. So every all the broadcasts were delayed by several weeks from when. So we were all kind of like dodging spoilers and then gathering around the TV to watch these finales. Because 2004, definitely Friends ended that year. Frasier also ended that year. And NBC's fortunes sank quite a bit after they lost both of those shows. With all that noise around that. Sometimes people forget another much loved show ended right around that same time. It was brought back for a couple movies and then a revival under a different title. It's called Sex and the City. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess in hindsight, thinking about other HBO shows, given his connection to The Sopranos, would have made more sense. But yeah, I uh, did not make that leap. All right, so we head into the super hard round. James still in the lead at 26.0, David at 16.2, Manas at 12.2. Point values go up, six for a steal, five for a specialist, three for a bonus. And we'll begin with David and Manas to try and steal from James. Yeah, so I, I ended up asking four astrophysicists for a consultation on this question. I probably still got some details wrong, and anything I get wrong is not due to my consultants, but is due to my inability to understand what they were telling me. All right. So the Interplanetary Transport Network is a collection of gravitationally determined solar system pathways that require very little energy for a spacecraft to traverse. This sort of transport necessitates the use of Lagrange points, as calculated by Joseph-Louis Lagrange's 1772 solution, building on earlier work by Leonard Euler, to the restricted three-body problem. How many Lagrange points are determined by two large masses sharing an orbital plane, assuming a mass ratio greater than 24.96 and a few other standard conditions? In other words, given two massive objects sharing an orbital plane and satisfying a few other standard conditions, at how many points can a relatively small mass object be placed so that it will maintain its position relative to the other two masses without being displaced by their combined gravitational forces? Okay, so... In other words, given two massive objects sharing an orbital plane, as I assume. Huh. Okay, I'm assuming that the number is not three, just because it yeah. feels like, given this is the three-body problem, obviously that refers to the number of bodies. But I probably should have read my three-body problem book that I bought like four years ago and never read. Yeah, before. it wouldn't surprise me if the answer is somewhere in there. I have also not read the book. I'm just, do we have any way to... Obviously, I don't think we can do the math. We don't have that kind of time or knowledge. But is there? What are we supposed to be inferring to give us a plausible understanding? I feel like, hmm. well, there are these things in math called Lagrange multipliers, but those are for partial derivatives. They're not really used for something. Should we should we be thinking about like how many places can it be placed where it's equidistant while also having some other condition? Well, it just says without being displaced by their combined gravitational forces. Right. So it has to be like equidistant relative to like accounting for the differences in gravitational forces. It's what I'm assuming. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's only so many places where that will occur without like, I mean, I, I think mean, I guess if that's the only concern, there are an infinite number of places, but it also has to be right there. There are other conditions that would make like, you know, if it's too far away, I'm assuming that that's, it could be equidistant, but it's so far away that. Other yeah. Conditions. I mean, the first thing that, Popped into my mind was either in well it was infinite like you said but maybe also six because it's three factorial that's the number of ways you can arrange three different objects in any order that is the best logic i've heard so far i'm fine with locking that in okay six locked in all right james i've been drawing this the entire time they've been discussing it and 
I still haven't gotten beyond what are my first two thoughts when you said how many Lagrange points, which is five and eight. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty positive there's at least five. I'm just, why am I thinking of eight? Because the eight seems like too many for a problem that really only has two bodies because the Lagrange points, like this test mass is, for example, the James Webb Space Telescope is headed out to, I think it's L2, but the, the Lagrange point beyond us from the, the sun and like we're, we're talking about where the third mass is like the James Webb Space Telescope, which just compared to the Earth and the Sun has just no mass at all. So I'm, I'm guessing that the reason I'm thinking of five and eight is that there's five that people talk about and that maybe there's three more that are just not theoretically useful at all. So I think I'm going to have to lock in eight. Okay, yeah. Actually, your bonus was going to be which point the uh, James Webb Telescope is at. Uh, and you're right. It's at L2. L3 is behind the sun. It's it's not very useful, except in science fiction. It's usually described as a location of the hidden planet that whatever alien race comes from. But yeah, I mean, Euler basically found three points that are kind of on the, the line connecting the Berry Center of the two masses, which are unstable equilibria. And then Lagrange calculated two more that are stable equilibria that are basically vertices of an equilateral triangle formed by connecting the Berry Centers. So three plus two makes five. Damn it. I think I just added three a second time for no reason. Great. <laughs> despite all the legitimate knowledge you have, we get to say that we're closer than you are. <laughs> Correct answer. <laughs> we, were, we were one off. Yeah. Hi, Future Yogesh here. I just want to thank Gilbert Siu, Helen Yamamoto, and friends of Biff Riser and Raj Duvalia for allowing me to consult them on shaping the previous question. Any mistakes I made are entirely my fault. All right, James and Manus now to try and steal from David. So speaking of Pine Barrens, the classic episode we were talking about earlier, it revolves around Christopher and Polly attempting to kill a character fans generally refer to as the Russian. Although the ultimate fate of the Russian is never revealed, we do learn his first name, which coincidentally is also the first name of the real-life scientist played by Jared Harris in Chernobyl. What is that name? Well, we've got a lot of Russian first names to, to go with. Andre, Alexei, Pavel, Dmitri, yeah, there's uh, Ivan, um, all the czars. Um, <sighs> Chris from Polly trying uh, the Russian. Um, dude, I don't know who this scientist is in Chernobyl. I don't either, but I can think there is there was a Russian scientist named Andrei Sakharov who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. Or campaigning against nuclear power. Should we say him then? Okay. Andre, yeah, that could work. Is it Andre locked in? That's a good guess. I don't know if he was campaigning against nuclear power so much as nuclear weapons, but um, yeah. <laughs> yes. Hmm. But uh, a good that guess. Could still show up in a movie like Chern- or a show like Chernobyl. Fair enough. Yeah, good guess, but not correct. David? Okay. So. A few things going through my head. I feel like I have a pretty good lock on this, but I'm not 100%. So the first thing that came to mind was Slava, but that is, I'm almost certain that's wrong. I believe Slava's name comes up a lot more. I think that's the boss of the Russian that Tony does a lot of, like, interacts with for a few episodes around in, the, in this season. And the Russian is like one of Slava's soldiers or his, his henchmen that, you know, 
interacts with Christopher and Polly. So I don't think it's Slava. It's a V name is what's coming to mind. And I'm debating between Vitaly or Vasily. I don't think it's Vladimir. I feel like if it was just commonly Vladimir, I would remember that for sure. And I'm more, I'm, I'm, I'm leaning more towards Vasily because I think that I'm thinking of Vitaly because of the Klitschko's in Ukraine and that being in the news. So Vasily is what I like more. Just the only other angle I have that I have listened to or read an interview where like, other than the ending of the show, what happened to the Russian is the question that creator David Chase gets asked the most about The Sopranos. And I believe at some point him or maybe Tim Van Patten actually answered that we had considered writing, uh, filming a scene where we show the Russians still being alive, but being essentially brain dead or having amnesia from the severe injuries that Christopher and Polly gave him so that he's alive, but he can't remember what happened or that the Soprano family is responsible. So the Sopranos has never actually had suffering reprisal from it. And I'm just, I can't remember them mentioning the Russian by name in that interview. So I got to hope that my gut of Vasily is correct. That's what we're going to lock in with. I think you weren't thinking of the chess player Vasily Ivanchuk. No. (laughs) (laughs) I was not. You were clearly thinking along the right lines because both of your guesses began with the correct letter and ended with the correct letter. Unfortunately, it was in between those two you went wrong. His name was Valerie. Valerie. Okay. Yeah. Valerie Legasov was the scientist who, unfortunately, in order to draw attention to the factors behind the Chernobyl disaster, unable to make any progress, he ended up killing himself on the anniversary of the disaster, which finally brought the attention he'd been seeking. All right. David and James now. A more lighthearted question to try and steal from Manus. The Bill Dana show, the Joey Bishop show, and the Andy Griffith show were all spinoffs of a long-running TV program centered on which actor? Supporting characters on this man's series were played by Marjorie Lord, mother of Oscar nominee Ann Archer and grandmother of longtime Scientology spokesperson Tommy Davis, and Sherry Jackson, whose guest appearance as the android Andrea in the Star Trek episode What Are Little Girls Made Of is perhaps the paradigmatic illustration of Tice titillation theory. That was the theory the costume designer on Star Trek came up with to how to maximize pleasing the male gaze within the constraints of 60s network television censorship. Okay, I've never heard of that. Um, <laughs> My name, at least, although it's definitely yeah, under um, alliteration. Yeah. Okay, so a long running TV group center on which character? Notably, it's not necessarily. Actor, not character. Oh, actor, sorry. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, the, the, it could be one of those where it's like the characters playing yeah. themselves, but yeah. So I have a thought. So, right, I have a feeling this actor is better known for playing a character that we recognize, which is leading me yeah. towards both Phil Silvers and Jim Neighbors, because, right, they played Sergeant Bilko and Gomer Pyle, USMC, respectively. And that's notably absent from the clue. And of course, these are, these are obviously old shows, so it has to be like a 50s show, probably, or early yeah, 60s. Definitely. I mean, the Phil Silver show is a thing. And I don't think it was, I actually don't know anything about it other than like he's Sergeant Bilko and he had a show. I don't know if it was a talk show or a sitcom where he just, you know, much like Andy Griffith's show was a sitcom using the, yeah. the actor's name and the title. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if, if we're supposed to name an actor who's also a Scientologist because of the Tommy Davis connection. I don't know for sure if any of these old timey actors were Scientologists at some point in their lives. I don't think uh, so. Like, can you name any, I mean, I just, because this is when L. Ron Hubbard was still alive. So I just don't know of any celebrities involved with L. Ron Hubbard. Not uh, in the 50s. I don't think it was a thing then. 
Because okay. like you would have heard about it with all the stuff with the the code and the right. blacklist, probably. Yeah. Just to make sure, it is Phil Silver's plural and not Silver singular, right? The actor, Sergeant Bilko actor. Uh, you, you're asking the wrong person. All right. I guess if I said the Phil Silver show, I could kind of like slur the S between, so it's. <laughs> <laughs> That um, only works if you don't say you're going to do it. <laughs> I'm not going to do it because I know how this quiz is run. I'm not going to get away with any 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 chicanery like that. <laughs> we but have not gonna... been warned on this one to enunciate, though. <laughs> that is true, and you you are giving hints to listeners about how they can uh, blur lines in the future in their uh, quizzing. That's oh, really if, what, if, you, yeah. if you want a masterclass on that, just watch Chris Ray at any point. Um. <laughs> All right. I mean, I've got nothing more to go on. I mean, I guess, right, it is a man. We have that it's a man. Yes. Right? Yeah, we could say the Jackie Gleason show. We could say any any number of people have had shows. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think if it were Jackie Gleason, it might be too easy for a super hard round because he's an obvious guest for a famous 50s actor on TV. So... We'll, we'll lock in Silvers. Okay. Decent guess, yeah. That was a, a sitcom, a situation comedy built around Sergeant Bilko, which is sometimes shown in syndication as. It actually, it, it never really made the splash in syndication that its contemporary show I Love Lucy did, which leads to a very odd cultural disjunction because in England, the Phil Silver show was shown all the time on the BBC. So that like pretty much all English people know that show and think it's like the most famous American sitcom. And they're not even familiar with I Love Lucy. But all right, Manas. Well, like David said, Jackie Gleason is too easy for a super hard question, which means that Ron Howard would also be too easy for a super hard question. But I know that, oh, yeah, what was the ending of the show a spinoff of? Because, because I know that Ron Howard was in both shows, the original and the Andy Griffith show. Because he played the kid. I'll just say Ron Howard blocked him. All right, yeah. Yeah, when you said Jim Neighbors, like the, that's the opposite way, right? Gomer Pyle first appeared on the Andy Griffith show and then was spun off into his mm-hmm. own series. Andy Griffith show is really an early example of a backdoor pilot. It wasn't, it wasn't like an existing character on the show who got his own series. It was like they introduced him on an episode of the show and then gave his own series. Yeah, the Bill Dana show, I think, centered on uh, Bill Dana's now very politically incorrect character of... Jose Jimenez. Anyway, the correct answer is someone who show ran, I think, for 11 seasons through the 50s and 60s, crossed over with I Love Lucy in, in one of the Lucy Desi comedy hours. But the main actor, he went on to produce many other shows from that era that we still remember fondly, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Mod Squad, and he founded a hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. That's still a very famous St. Oh. Ju- Jude's. Danny Kay? No, Danny Thomas. Oh, dude. Yeah. Oh. Oops. Well, again, I'm glad that I didn't figure it out only to say the wrong Danny. That would have been even worse. Yeah. All right. David and Manus to try and steal from James. Greg Yaitan S1A 2008 Emmy for directing House's Head, the fourth season House episode, noted for its stunning climactic bus crash sequence. Throughout the episode, House hallucinates a woman, played by Ivana Milicevic, who refers to herself as the answer and wears a necklace that turns out to be significant. What is that necklace made of? Ooh, it's Amber. Yeah, because Amber is the name of the character that House usually calls a, a name that we probably shouldn't repeat here. I mean, I guess it was okay for TV, but it was still kind of mean spirited. But yeah, right. Amber Lock was her last name Dudek, uh, or that's just the name of the, the actor. 
actress. I think Anne Dudick was the actress. And yeah, Amber. Amber what, was her name? what was her name? Amber Volakis. Okay, I just want to make sure the last name wasn't a clue. And just so right, like I agree that Amber makes perfect sense for this. Yeah, it's Amber locked in. All right. Yeah. Uh, and and Dudek, yeah, as you said, Anne Dudek was the actress, also very good on corporate. And Amber Volakis was the full name of the character. And a quick bonus for James. House's Head was the first part of a two-part episode forming House's season four finale. What was the title of the second part? Wilson's Heart. Indeed. Everyone because gets that's point. when you discover that it is Wilson's girlfriend, Amber, who was quite cutthroat, I, I believe. Um, <laughs> that, that was part of her nickname, yes. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so everyone gets points on that. The gap toward James closes slightly, but not all that much. James and Manus now trying to steal from David. Rufus-tailed, cinnamon, ortracious. Citron-bellied, white-eyed, gray-hooded, and bright-rumped are the common adjectives for the seven species of what genus of tropical passerine birds, noted for predatory and aggressive behavior, that lies within, appropriately enough, the tyrant flycatcher family? Uh, dragonflies, right? You said dragonfly? Oh, birds, so... Yeah, that's a bird. Um, uh, Rufus Towns... I mean, this is like, what's a passerine bird? Never heard that before. Some sort of falcon or not, but falcons would be hunting larger prey. What about finches? Like in the Galapagos? I was thinking Darwin's finches, it could be related to that, but I... Speaking about the wild thornberries, actually, they, they did an episode which was related to this where like they showed you different finches that were like trying to get at different grubs and like they they just gave them eliza uh gave them like a little needle to get at them and then they ended up like depopulating an entire island of of grub insects but i don't well why does it say appropriately enough the tyrant yeah i don't know if they're supposed to be tyrants or they're supposed to be eating flies but i don't think it was sort of like a, a passive thing that like they're hunting for I mean, it, it could be. It's not, I'm not going to rule it out, but I think we should try and think of another answer. The first thing I think of when I think of tropical birds is things like parrots and macaws, but I know a lot of species of them and none of them have come up there. Or what about like toucans? Because they're, they have bright colors. They are, yeah, and they could definitely tropical. Oh yeah, they are, they do, like they are predatory. Like they, they swoop down under the water and they, they scoop up the, the fish and their little whatever you'd call this thing. Yeah, I, I like I like that. Okay. Or wait, or am I thinking of a pelican instead of a toucan? I think you're thinking of pelicans, but I, uh, they might belong to the same family. Maybe. But toucans are tropical. Pelicans are. Yeah, no, toucan is the the right one of those two. I think. Yeah, I think that's that's probably more likely than a, a finch, but I'm I'm not I'm not positive. You want to lock it in or? Let's lock, yeah, let's lock in Toucan. Okay, Toucan locked in. All right, yeah, named after the famous tyrant Toucan Sam. <laughs> uh, good, good guess, but not correct. Over to David. All right, yep, yeah, I'm struggling with this. So the number of birds that would be classified as passerine, I think it numbers in the thousands. That doesn't really help narrow it down. So, right, I'm trying to think of famous tyrants that this genus could be named after. And given that Binomial nomenclature began, started with Linnaeus in the, the mid-1700s. It's got to be 
someone like it, you know, if it's if it was a contemporary thing, like a contemporary scientist named it after a, a tyrant that was active at the time, I gotta think relatively recent history. But it doesn't have to be. It could very easily be, you know, they wanted to name something after Genghis Khan or Attila the Hun. They they could. So, and of course, also all of these scientific names that were considered valid were described by Europeans. Just there was the the system was created by Linnaeus, who was Swedish, and it was adopted by Europeans. And, you know, because the sun never sets in the British Empire, that's just how it worked. And so most species that were known at the time were never given scientific names derived from indigenous names. It was always based on what the European taxonomists felt like they wanted to do. So I'm going to go with the European tyrant. I'm going to say, well, the Mad King George, right? George III. That's a very plausible, plausible thing. I was also thinking of the Kingfisher because that's, you know, Tyrant King. But I would call that, I mean, right, Kingfisher is in southern U.S., which, like Louisiana, you know, you think of the Kingfisher. And I wouldn't call that tropical. It's swampy. I wouldn't say it's tropical. The thing is, so let's say I choose George III. doesn't mean the genus is, the genus is not going to be just, you know, George III. It could be, but that's kind of unusual nomenclature and it's unlikely. With a species epithet, you actually do often add an I at the end. So if you want to name something after a guy named George, you could say, you know, if it was a new dog species, Canis George I would be what you would do if you want to name after George. But also just having a genus named George is just kind of weird in and of itself. There aren't that many that just have the first name of a person with no modifier. And this is a super hard question. So knowing the modifier could play a role here. It could be Georgia you know, like the state. Should I be thinking of Louis? I mean, I said Louisiana earlier, kind of offhandedly. You know, there are certainly plenty of Louis. I just don't, I don't know of any, I feel like if there were genera of birth named after states that are shared named state, Georgia, Louisiana, Carolina, that I would know about them. And I just don't, but you know, I don't specialize in birds. There's certainly, hmm. All right, between Georgia and Louisiana, I'm going to pick Louisiana, lock that in. All right, yeah. I've been biting the inside of my lower lip to try and keep a straight face. And it was probably a good thing I did, actually, because there was one point where you said something that I almost reacted to, but I don't, I think I managed to keep a, a straight face. Yeah, uh, this is a rare case where the kind of the common name for the birds and the genus name is actually exactly the same. And when you say, you know, if they wanted to, draw a comparison to a tyrant, they could, you know, always go back to history, name it after someone uncontroversial, everyone agrees was a tyrant. They could name it after Genghis Khan or Attila the Hun. You're right, they could. Yeah, it's called Attila. Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) All right, David and James now to try and steal from Manus. What author penned 20 mystery novels, 16 of them featuring fictional sleuth Nigel Strangeways, under the pseudonym Nicholas Blake? He served as UK Poet Laureate from 1968 until his death in 1972, and was the only holder of that position between 1930 and 1984 to not have the forename John. Huh. Okay. So I have a guess, but I don't like it, but at least it's something we can go with if we have nothing better. Okay. Actually, I have two guesses. So I know for a fact that Cecil Day-Lewis was a Poet Laureate, father of Daniel Day-Lewis. The question is, when? And here's the other thing here. So before, if this was asked two weeks ago, I would have, that's what I would have gone because I know for sure he's a UK poet laureate. However, in a recent OQL match that asked about a poet laureate, my teammate 
June Pak gave a wrong answer of Philip Larkin. And I never actually asked him, like, do you know for sure whether Larkin's a poet laureate or he's guessing a poet? I think he was. I don't, I don't know though, like, um... The problem is neither Philip or Cecil have this forename John. And if we think they're both poet laureates, one of them then has to have not served between 1930 and 1984. Now, Daniel Day-Lewis is 60 years old, roughly, which would mean he was born in the early 60s. Yeah, which means likely his father did serve in that range. Well, right. How much older, how old was Cecil when he had Daniel? Between the two, I think I'd much rather go with the person that I at least know was a poet laureate or female counterpart yes. poet laureate. Yeah, definitely. Um, and like, I, I think that this is, um, that this would make sense because I've heard of Larkin. I feel like I would have heard if he had like a, a big, like fictional detective, like that would come up in quiz bowl or trivia frequently as they tend to do. But yeah, Cecil Day-Lewis, I would not have heard of his mystery novels. Right, uh, me neither. Yeah, just going off the poet laureate part. So um, just, okay, lock in Day-Lewis. All right. All right. As you were talking, I was about to say that Philip Larkin was probably too controversial to be named poet laureate. But apparently when John Betjeman died in 1984, he was offered the position and he was the one who turned it down. But uh, yeah, so it went instead to Ted Hughes, famously the husband of Sylvia Plath who has his own set of controversies. But yeah, in between John Macefield and John Betjeman, the non-John, as it were, it was Cecil Day-Lewis. Good job. All right, David and Manas now to try and steal from James, heading into the final cycle of questions. I I should probably give a score update. Let's see, that was James and David. Yeah, James ahead by 6.8 points going into this final cycle. So difficult to catch, but it's possible. All right, David and Manas to try and steal from James. Prominent chess streamer Chiu Zhao, a.k.a. Nemo or Nemsko, had a multicultural upbringing. Born in China and currently identifying as Canadian, she first became interested in chess at the age of three while living in France. In 2010, she won the Women's National Championship of what country, where she was then residing, a feat all the more impressive because, although her competitors were adults, she was at the time only 10 years old. Oh, okay. I don't how does that help us? Well, let me just say, first of all, that just because I don't want to make another another blunder with forgetting what happened on Yogesh's streaming show where I had to answer chess questions, there was a question about a woman who won the Swiss chess championship. I do not believe it was this woman. I believe the woman was uh, European. So this woman is, as it's in the question of Chinese ancestry. So it's not going to be her. I just want to bring that up just in case it somehow matters. It was either Switzerland or Denmark. Right. So again, the logic I used there when I was when I somehow bumbled into answering Switzerland correctly was that what are some countries where in 2010 you don't have any super grandmasters from those countries, right? It can't be, I can't imagine it's Norway because Magnus Carlsen was active in 2010. And yeah, oh. he wasn't the champion yet, but he surely actually sorry, no, she won the women's national championship. So maybe that even doesn't matter. So Never mind then. I unfortunately know very little about women that are women grandmasters. The Polgars were probably not playing anymore by 2010. So even that leaves Hungary open as an option. Like, I guess we should be thinking, you know, where would there, where, what country would hold a chess championship, but not have any grandmasters participating? 
such that a 10-year-old prodigy could conceivably win. So you said Denmark. Yeah. Uh, what was your logic behind Denmark? Well, Denmark doesn't have a lot of grandmasters, but I think they do have a pretty large presence in chess. Okay. I'm also coning in on, so, okay, so she won 2010 at age 10. So she was born in China in the year 2000, mm-hmm. uh, currently living in Canada, interested in chess at the age of three while living in France. So in 2003, she's in France. Right. And at some point moves to Canada, but is in a different place in between. Now, the fact that both France and part of Canada are Francophone might be a connection there. We might want to go with another country that has French as, if not a national language, at least a language that is widely spoken. Maybe like Belgium? Belgium is a very interesting possibility there, yeah. I mean, it also opens, up, opens it up to Africa, and there are like at least 20 Francophone African countries. That's very true. It is also, however, right, do all those countries even hold world chess or national championships? Um, like, I wouldn't be surprised if Senegal does. I feel like they have enough of, you know, a demand to have that sort of thing. We also have to factor in that many of these countries still have sort of repressive regimes that may not be promoting women doing, you know, intellectual pursuits as children. That may also, even if there are women that are capable, they may not have the opportunity. That would eliminate all the Francophone African countries then. Yeah. If there's a country, like, I know that China has, you know, been trying to extend its influence in certain African countries like Kenya. And if her father is a Chinese businessman of sorts that is making deals in Kenya, right? Like that could be a reason for her to move there. She's clearly moved a lot, right? She moved from China to France to somewhere else to Canada in 10 years. Her her parents must be, one or both of them must be involved in, you know, some profession that requires you to move. Or maybe they were like UN diplomats or something like that, yeah. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Diplomats given different assignments. Wait a um, minute. Um, I was thinking actually because it said 2010. Well, that was when the, if they were, if her parents were UN diplomats, wouldn't they have gone to Haiti at that time because that was when the earthquake hit? Hmm. Francophone, doing some sort of aid. Mm-hmm. But would there have been infrastructure to hold a championship in, yeah, that's even before the earthquake? Yeah, that's what turned me off from it at first. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I, I, again, I apologize if that is right. We're steering away from it, but I'd rather go with a European country. Maybe one of the microstates like Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, Monaco. I'm trying to remember where any of these actually speak French. Does, does Liechtenstein speak French? I thought they were mostly German. I think yeah, it's German-Swiss is where they, what they border, right? Germany. Yeah, they have mad strict uh, immigration policies. Okay. Like, um, she's not even old enough to move there now. Right. I mean, Monaco could be obviously, you know, borders France, and it's such a small population that a place as rich as Monaco is going to have a chess championship to say they have one. Yeah. And I could see them having just so few competitors that a 10-year-old moderately good at chess could win. But Belgium is still also possible, right? Like, this person's a chess streamer. They've got to be a master, if not grandmaster. So they've got to be very, very good. Seat of the, the EU. That's true. Yeah. All right. Got lots of choices. towards Belgium. Okay. Then let's let's stop debating and lock that in. If you're all right with it. Okay. Belgium locked in. All right. A lot of interesting points raised. Good guess. Not correct, James. Well, Nemo, I've 
watched a little bit of, but I I actually didn't know a whole lot of this multicultural upbringing stuff of of hers. I I, I knew she was born in China and I knew she was Canadian, but all the stuff in the middle, uh, never heard of. I agree with all of the stuff you guys were saying. Um, the 2010, the the where she was currently residing, I think the key is going to have to be something that happened in the world in 2010, either something very good or something very bad, like whether it was the earthquake in Haiti or some sort of business boom that one of her parents was involved in doing business with. With all of that said... I was I was thinking like 2010 was close to like maybe when Arab Spring was happening or around I think somewhere in the early 2010s was the like South Sudan referendum but with all the French connections I I feel like the that Haiti earthquake and Haiti being the answer I'm locking in is the one that makes the most sense. All right, you're locking in Haiti you said? Yeah. I'm curious now actually about to what degree chess has made inroads in Africa? Because I know there was that movie, Queen of Katwe, that it looks like was set in Uganda. Interesting. But um, yeah, I think Chio Zhao or, or Nemo or Nemsko or whatever, her, uh, her father, I think, was a computer scientist and went to various technical institutes in different parts of Europe. But she was or first actually the under 10 champion at the age of five. And then when she got to 10, when she got to 10, she competed in the overall women's national championship, which she won in Finland. Finland. Okay. Oh, close. I Denmark initially. Yeah. Yeah. Denmark was close. Definitely. All right. James and Manus now to try and steal from David, the penultimate question of the game. What Harvard-based social psychologist who has no direct connection to LeBron James authored the 2006 book, Stumbling on Happiness and pioneered research on cognitive biases in affective forecasting. Effective forecasting refers to basically our predictions about how we will feel under various circumstances we haven't actually experienced yet. Oh, well, David, so this is from the LeBron James category, but it's not a direct connection. <laughs> okay. Um, so stumbling on happiness. Cognitive biases is uh, what's his name? Thinking fast and slow is he at Harvard? No, he's Princeton. Okay, Santayana is not a social psychologist, even though I'm pretty sure he's at Harvard. Yeah, who else? I mean, is this going to be like somebody with like a basketball-sounding name, like something like Jordan, or I don't know? <laughs> I don't really know much about. I don't really know much about like happiness-related books. I mean, there. What's uh, Martin Seligman is at Penn because when I went there, I I I worked in the same astronomy research group as his son Daryl, who is now doing a postdoc at U Chicago, where I just finished grad school. So cool connection there, but nothing helping on this particular question. Uh, uh, social psychology. So is this going to be somebody with like one of those famous experiments named after him? Milgram's at Yale, but like Bandura or... Um... I also thought of, what I think, I thought of William James when Yogesh said no connection to LeBron James. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure he's Harvard, but I also thought he was like dead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Like, I thought he was active in the 40s, which would basically exclude him authoring a book in 2006. I mean, not st strictly speaking, but like, realistically. 
I think William James was long dead by the 40s, actually. Oh, okay then. Um, that's the 40s I'm thinking of. Or, um, but at least last time I, I was aware of it, Harvard Psychology Department is in William James Hall. Hmm. That's cool. <sighs> wow. I don't know. I, I, I got nothing. So I, what, what angle do we want to go with? Do we want to go with some psychologist that we don't know where they're from? Do we want to go with a basketball name? Well, I, I, I thought of one other person. But I don't understand. I don't understand what the no direct connection to LeBron James is. Like, what does that have to do with this? So, but what what's the the person you're thinking of? Well, the person I'm thinking of is Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who wrote a lot of books, and he's currently active. Okay, he's around my dad's age, actually. Well, I I think that we could we could go for that because it's better than just naming a random name. Like, he's definitely a academic a psychologist i think nasim nicholas taleb locked in all right decent guess david what do you think you're you on mute. mute sorry yeah i've been trying to mute partially so i don't blur stuff out but also because i noticed my chair is kind of squeaky i didn't wanted to minimize that i think i'll be guessing smith but let me tell you why because it's not just a lucky smith uh my hope is that this harvard-based social psychologist has the exact same name as a teammate of LeBron's. And that's why they have no direct connection, but would have an indirect connection by having the same first and last name. So it makes sense to go with a common surname that's more likely to be showing up. Like, I feel unlikely that if, if there was a psychologist named Dwayne Wade or Chris Bosch or Kyrie Irving, or An I guess Anthony Davis is sort of common, but I just feel like I, that would have somehow come up. Or I feel like Yogesh would have mentioned it at some point in one of his super hard quizzes. So I'm thinking of teammates that were reasonably well-known for playing with LeBron, common surnames and not super famous. There's a few. There's Delonte West, who I believe had a relationship with LeBron's mother while they were teammates, which has kind of caused some, some strife going there. Uh, Mo Williams was famously, I think, the second highest scoring Cleveland Cavalier in the season where LeBron took them to his first NBA finals and they got whooped pretty badly. But just a joke, like LeBron was just carrying the team so much that this mediocre player, Mo Williams, was the second highest scorer because they just had nobody. They had just no depth at all. I think later in his career with the Cavs, I think Zadrunas Ilgowskis filled that role of being kind of the second highest scoring or the, like, the second best player on LeBron's Cavs. But if there's a psychologist named Zadrunas Ilgowskis, I'm, I'm not going to guess that. But then we come back to Smith. J.R. Smith was a fairly capable teammate of LeBron's, and I think he may have even bailed them out sort of with his three-point shooting in one of the games that, James, you mentioned earlier, where they made the three-to-one comeback in that playoff series against Golden State. But one could argue, I'm liking this connection more and more than when I say it, that he stumbled on LeBron's happiness, prevented him from getting that happiness by totally ruining LeBron's brilliant 50-point performance against Golden State in one of the, I think it was the 2018 finals, when Kevin Durant was on the Warriors and LeBron basically keeps it a close game with an amazing performance and J.R. Smith thinking that they need to run out the clock instead of shooting the ball, doesn't pass, doesn't shoot, just runs it out. And LeBron's trying to tell him like there, there's this meme of LeBron going, what are you doing? You know? And I just like the idea of, you know, stumbling on happiness, J.R. Smith screwing that up for LeBron. They lose the first game and then they kind of just turn the tide of the series. It just doesn't feel like it can be right. But I love and but even if I even if that's not right, I still don't know. I'm still just gonna guess a common surname. So we're gonna lock in Smith. All right, yeah. Thank you mentioned when you, 
Uh, sorry, when you said Devonte Smith or not uh, De- Devonte West, I was thinking Cornell West would be a connection because he's definitely an academic, and I think he's at Harvard. But that's true. I think the more was a philosopher than a psychologist, though. Yeah, yeah Cornell West will figure it into a question in tomorrow's episode, the episode I'm taping tomorrow. But yeah, when you said Bandura, I was going to say Bandura actually was my undergrad advisor, so he's very much oh. a very much a Stanford linked person, not, not Harvard yeah, at all. That's, that's where I thought he was from, but I, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So here's the thing, right? In, in the past, when I had a big backlog of episodes and I let them build up for like a year and sometimes I would tape one and someone would guess something that, you know, kind of had been covered in one of those episodes that had been taped, but not yet released. And I'd be like, oh, I feel guilty. I should have been getting these episodes out quicker. But, you know, I don't think anyone could reasonably expect me to have gotten out the episode I taped yesterday out yet. So I wrote a question where the answer was J.R. Smith. I referenced LeBron James and, you know, I was trying to draw people's attention to that meme as a clue. And I read it yesterday in yesterday's episode. It's not this one, but that is a very interesting coincidence that you happen to talk so much about it the day after I take a separate question about it. I Uh, thought I had an angle. Oh, well. (laughs) This man's name is Daniel Gilbert. Ah, Referring to Cleveland Cavaliers owner, Dan Gilbert. Oh, okay. Okay, see, the owner of the general manager. Either way, he's one of the front office people that famously wrote a scathing reply to LeBron's decision. But of course, once LeBron rejoined the Cavaliers, all was forgiven. <laughs> Kobe Altman. Yeah, but I, I think I, I, I think Manas, I sent you uh, Dan Gilbert's paper on immune neglect. I suggested you read a few times. You told me you would, but uh... no, no I, I read part of that. I just didn't notice the author. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, final question of the game now. David and James to try and steal from Manas. In the 1991 New York Times article, Behind Monty Hall's Doors, Puzzle, Debate, and Answer, question mark, John Tierney lays out the controversy surrounding the so-called Monty Hall problem, which was stated in Marilyn Vos Savant's Ask Marilyn column in Parade Magazine thusly. Suppose you're on a game show and you're given the choice of three doors. Behind one door is a car, behind the other is goats. You pick a door, say number one, and the host, who knows what's behind the other doors, opens another door, say number three, which has a goat. He then says to you, do you want to pick door number two? Is it to your advantage to take the switch? So Vosavant's answer, yes, you should always switch, is generally presented as the correct solution to this conundrum. However, when Tierney interviewed Monty Hall himself, the eminent game show host pointed out a fatal flaw in the problem's presentation that rendered the conventional solution moot. What was the shaky assumption that Monty zeroed in on? So the first thing that pops into my head here is that goats are loud um, <laughs> and that you might be able to figure it out to yourself, but that I think is just too dumb. Um, <laughs> yeah, I also think that, right, this, I forget exactly when, when the show aired, but right, this is around the time of the quiz show scandals. I think if there was a way to cheat or game the system that wasn't part of the rules, then that would have been eliminated. So, or so, at least Monty Hall would probably talk about it. But you're definitely reminding me of the 30 Rock where Kenneth had the idea for a game show called Gold Case, where models would all hold up cases, but one of them would be made out of gold. And of course, every contestant immediately spotted the gold case because it was so really? much heavier. <laughs> um, so... My my other thought on this is that Monty Hall being the host, one of the assumptions is that the host knows where the car is. And 
if he is the host, he would know whether or not he knew where the car is. But I always thought he did. Like when he watched the show, he did always reveal the door that had something that wasn't the big deal. Right. Even if he didn't know at the time, right? Yeah. Presumably he he couldn't reveal the car by mistake. Yeah, like the, the hosts would tell him or the, the producers would tell him which door he was then going to reveal. Right. So even though Monty could have said that, as that's not technically true, it wouldn't be the fatal, it wouldn't be a true fatal flaw in the presentation. Yeah. Because it's just, you know, he learns what the truth is before he opens the door showing the goat. So by that point, he knows it. It's not like he's randomly guessing himself. So what else could it be? I mean, I like that logic. It could be something along those lines, but I just don't Um, think it, it makes sense. There are a bunch of trivial things that I'm thinking of, like there's sometimes curtains, not doors. There's not two of the same prize that are interchangeable. Right. Like there's um, a bunch of trivial things, but I don't think that's the right path. Yeah. Is it possible that you're not truly given a free choice of three doors? There's some other rule in the game that oh, you down? Yeah, well, there, there is, there is, you know, two people usually choosing it. Like, there's a first person picking from three, and then a second person picking from the remaining two. But I think that this, or, I mean, I guess it could be a fatal flaw that, like, if you were to do it where the the person picked a goat was revealed, and then you had the chance to switch, the second person would always be able to pick. Well, they'd only have one choice, and it would either be a known goat or a known car but i think that would be again on the more trivial side i don't know yeah is it also possible so right the idea is this kind of works in the aggregate right like that's what probabilities do yes and all things being equal each time then the probabilities work out that way is there other variables that change the probability of a future guess so that they're not all equal and that it's not you know nothing that wasn't that wouldn't be like cheating like they couldn't switch afterwards right. and but that if they actually on the show were able to switch things after the contestants pick their doors i feel like that would have been a huge scandal and everyone would have heard about it yeah um although i i guess actually actually not necessarily i mean i wouldn't what you just said so there's a car behind one of the doors if the contestant yeah. picks the correct door and the, somehow without anyone noticing they're able to switch the location of the car so that they were able, they're able to open a door that shows a goat, but they're like, it's like a shell game. They're still moving things around between the two unopened doors. But that just feels, yeah, like, I just don't think that seems legitimate. Like, like, like you said, I just don't see how you do that in a way that, you know, makes it still a fair choice when you've been picking one of the doors. Is it yeah. possible that there's more than three doors on the Monty Hall show or on Let's no, Make a Deal? No, not on Let's Make a Deal, no. There are only three. Okay. In, in every episode I've watched, I've watched the old and new one. Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm expecting there's some sort of, like, it's not, like, there's a mathematical answer here, right? Because the previous two questions in this category. The previous questions were actually computational math. Right. Is it because of the whole Bayesian principle of, you know. Uh, oh. I'm, and again, but then again, I mean, Monty Hall be, has to like, give I don't, answer. I don't think you're asking, yeah, you're not asking right. Monty Hall about that. I mean, he could say something about, like, in, in layman's terms regarding prior and posterior probabilities, but. Yeah, I just, I can't, I can't make that into an answer. I think think that, I I, I keep coming back to like, he is the host. And one of the assumptions is that the host knows where the car is. 
And like, if he just doesn't know, then, and he is revealing it at random. Cause I, I'm, now that I'm thinking more about this, I think there are things of the show where they do show the big deal first to like keep it suspenseful when they wait until the last thing to show the person their car. Okay. The, I, mean, I, I guess actually, so you're right. So the host could be told open door number three. It does not yeah. mean they know what's behind it. It just means the producer says, hey, your job is to open the door. So do it and then react accordingly. So right, yeah. he may open that door and still, and then of course he may not know what he's about to, what he's about to open. Mm-hmm. That's possible. So right, like it's yeah. possible that yeah, I don't like I, I don't like any of my guesses better. Because like the the assumptions that underlie the problem are that there's three doors, one has a car, two have goats. That the host knows what they're revealing when they or that that he knows that he's revealing you a goat for certain. And it says renders the solution moot, not invalid. Like invalid would be if there was something mathematically wrong. But like moot that, yeah. is like the solution is for a situation that could never happen. Okay. I think I'm sold. I'm not gonna have to worry about anything better. I like your I like your logic. So, so we'll we're say, gonna lock in with the host did not actually know. Right. What, the shaky assumption the is that the host, the assumption is that the host does know, and that is yes, yeah. false. That is not true, is what Monty was saying. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to talk a little bit about your guess, because it is true that an unstated assumption that if violated would render the problem moot is that the host knows where the prize is and is always going to open a door that doesn't expose the prize, right? Because if the host were simply opening a door at random and there was a chance it could expose the prize, yeah, the logic of the conventional solution absolutely doesn't work. Right. It'd be more like that uh, kind of the variant on it where it's like, you know, there's a million lottery tickets and 999,998 of them have been scratched off and none of them are the one with the prize. You know, it's either the one you're holding or the one that hasn't been scratched off yet. Should you switch? And in that case, the answer is no, there's no good incentive to switch because your ticket is just as likely as any other ticket. The assumption being whoever's scratching them off doesn't know where the prize is. So, yeah, that's a really key assumption. The question is, is it a shaky assumption? And I would say, no, it's not. I would say that it's actually a pretty reasonable assumption to make, both in terms of how the show works and just in general, in terms of how this problem could be presented. I think it kind of makes sense to assume that whoever's opening the door or whoever's telling them which door to open knows where the prize is and is avoiding that door, right? It it wouldn't, there's just no real way it would make sense otherwise. Hi, this is Future Yogesh. And if you find my reasoning a bit shaky, I should point out that there's another, even stronger, argument for rejecting this answer. If you go back a few minutes in the podcast to when I stated the problem, you'll hear that I said the host knows what's behind the other doors. So that's not an unstated assumption. It is, in fact, quite clearly stated here. So I'm going to rule that answer incorrect and pass it to Manas. Well, David actually suggested the other thing I had in mind which is, are they or are they not moving the items around behind the scenes? But, okay, so the presentation is, suppose you're on a game show and you're given the choice of three doors, behind one door is a car, behind the other is goats. You pick a door, say number one, and the host who knows what's behind the other doors opens another door, say number three, which has a goat. He then says to you, do you want to pick door number two? Is it your advantage to the switch? Hmm. Well, that is Vos Savant's answer. Yes, you should always switch. Well, that assumes that the car is behind door number one.
So I'm going to say that the shaky assumption is that, wait, let me just. Uh, I mean, so it's like the, the presentation there is, you know, like a specific specified version. But I mean, in, in the abstract, it just says that, that the prize is behind a door, right? That's all that that's important for the problem to work. There is right. a prize and it's behind a door. Okay, so. Hmm. Oh, well, the shaky assumption is that you've chosen the other door with the goat. I'm going to lock that in. Sorry, could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so, well, like in the example you gave, say door number one, and then the answer, yes, you should always switch, is generally presented as the correct solution. Well, well, that assumes, that assumes you've chosen the other door with the goat behind it. Well, well, no, that's, uh, th just, this is just like done. statistically saying that if you do this an infinite number of times, you're going to end up with the car more often than if you don't switch. It's not guaranteed. Yeah, I mean, it just, you've picked a door, right? It could be one with the car yeah. or one with the goat, right? It, it's the, the problem assumes that either of those things could have happened. Hi, Future Yogesh here again. I just want to clarify why what James just said is accurate. Right, when Marilyn says that you should switch, she's not saying that switching will get you the prize 100% of the time. She's saying that switching will always raise the probability that you've picked the door with the prize behind it. Or another way of putting it is that switching has a higher expected value than not switching. I'm unclear. Did, did, Modest, did you lock in an answer? Because I was just going to start. You, you did lock in. So, so yeah, was that your lock? Uh, that was your locked. Oh yeah, I guess that that uh, that was your locked in answer, right? Because I, I just thought of I, I think I might have just realized what it is. Is okay. the assumption that I don't have you, any Okay. Is it that you pick the door when in reality on the show the contestant did not pick the door, the first door? I mean, the no, the kind of door. The the problem kind of depends on you picking a door, like that's how, and then being asked if you want to switch. That's yeah, that that's a key part of the problem. It's not an unstated assumption. Yeah, I think I so so my argument about this problem has always been that people say it's it's an example of how you know lay people don't understand probability, and I've argued that no, I think it's an example of how lay people do understand how gambles work, right? Because like let's say let's say that you are given you know hypothetically a thousand doors and you picked let's say door number forty-seven, and then you know the host goes through and systematically opens nine hundred ninety-eight of them until you know only now door forty-seven and let's say door fifty-three are the only ones left unopened. And now you're asked, do you want to switch? And at this point, right, most people in that situation again, it's a hypothetical, obviously, but you know you'd, you'd kind of think, what exactly is going on here, right? You would say, why am I being offered this choice to switch, right? Because Let's say that the host knows where the prize is, which is a reasonable assumption, and they deliberately avoided it, also a reasonable assumption. Then that means that by switching, I am now essentially being given it. So that means I'm basically being asked to choose between did you pick correctly or did you pick incorrectly? And the probability you pick correctly is one in a thousand, and the probability you picked incorrectly is 999 out of a thousand. And so obviously it makes sense to switch. But also, obviously, who the hell would offer you that gamble? And so then you might start to think, wait a minute, maybe they don't offer this to everyone. Maybe only when someone picks right the first time do they offer them the chance to switch because they're trying to trick me. And nowhere in this problem does it actually say that the host is compelled to offer you a chance to switch every time you make a choice. 
Oh, man. Oh, yeah, that's really clever. Yeah. And in fact, like, because if they did, if they were compelled, then basically you would be asked to choose between did you pick right or did you pick wrong? And obviously the probability you picked wrong is two thirds and the probability you pick right is one third. So obviously you should switch. Right. So, I mean, most people kind of intuitively know no one would offer them a gamble that's so obviously rigged against the person offering the gamble. Right. The house always wins. So, you know, instead they'd say, you know what, they're sometimes trying to bluff me by letting me choose. And then maybe because it's a long term game, they're also sometimes counter bluffing. They're actually offering me a chance to switch when I picked wrong just to kind of make it not because otherwise you would know to never switch. That would also be too easy a game. So, um, yeah, that was what that was what Monty Hall pointed out. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you know, I think I'm kind of thinking, I've seen some Deal or No Deal episodes. I think on Deal or No Deal, when it gets down to the last two cases, they always give you the opportunity to switch. It's always part of it. But there's so many other factors involved, the multiple cases, the price, the deals being offered, that that alone is not a reason to, like, you know, to use Monty Hall logic to decide whether to switch or not. I think. I actually don't know the full math of how it works. But yeah. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I think that was a a, a great question to talk over. And that was a lot of fun trying to figure it out. You know, the. I think you were pretty close, like with the whole like Bayesian probability thing, saying that like the fact that they've offered you the choice is additional information. Right. Well, right. The fact we didn't, we did not consider that the host does have knowledge and thus could use that knowledge at their discretion or the producers use the knowledge at their discretion. We just never took that extra step. But it's one of the, I mean, I love this question because the answer, when you hear it, makes perfect sense. It sounds simple. You know, anybody can easily conceptualize why that makes sense. But yet, as evidenced by our inability to guess it, it was really hard to figure out. All right. So that brings the game to a close. Thank you for uh, staying over time. But we end with James 35.0, David 28.2, Manus 18.2. Very good game by everyone. And now we'll just we'll it. Yeah, you'll each have a chance to make a final statement about anything you want to, about the game, about the world at large, about any combination of those things in any proportion. You can plug anything you want to. As long as it's not too long or offensive, it'll be kept in. And we'll start with David. uh, Sorry, no, no, we start with James. We start with James. Okay, well, uh, thank you, uh, Yogesh, for for writing the questions, David and Maas for uh, competing. And I mean, I wish I had a thing prepared, but let's go Mets. All right, David. Well, I was kind of hoping that LeBron James would be in the playoffs so that I could make some sort of shout out to him, but that is clearly not the case. This is being recorded in, in uh, well, it doesn't matter when because he didn't make the playoffs at all. So, uh, but I'll, I'll just say uh, again, thanks, Yogesh, for putting this together. And just thanks to all the people I've met in the intervening two years since my last appearance on this podcast in the online quizzing community, whether it's OQL, the various Mamir format games just all those venues for meeting fellow trivia and quiz lovers. It really made the pandemic a lot easier to weather, at least from my perspective. So, you know, since many of those people are listening, I just wanted to thank all of you for letting me be a part of your community. It's been a lot of fun. I hope to, you know, those of you that I haven't met yet, I hope to meet you at a future quiz later this year. Yeah, so David was one of the writers on episode 27, the one where I was a contestant. And so he's he has some experience trying to, I guess, get into my mindset or at least, you know, try to write questions like me, which makes it interesting that he did, in fact, correctly meta out a question that I would write about LeBron James. Unfortunately, he he figured out the question I asked in the previous episode rather than this one.
<laughs> I, I will say I got I got lucky with the Ken Russell film. Like I I kind of when I was thinking about questions you asked about his filmography, I had a pretty good idea something about the Space Jam background characters was coming. So the fact that I meted that out, you know, going one for two, I'm more than happy to do that. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. But yeah, just for a kind of posterity, since if people listen to these in order, they'll hear the previous episode before this one. But it was in fact taped just yesterday. So there was no way that any of these contestants could have been aware of its contents. All right. Manas. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. And wow, these were some difficult questions, but I think we all did all right. And it was good. Good to meet James and David. And I'm looking forward to the next episode. Cool. And thank you all for staying well over time. Even though we started about 10 minutes after the hour, we still dragged on a fairly long time. I I can't believe that went longer than our technical difficulties episode. (laughs) But yeah. Sorry about that. I mean, I, it's, it's a credit to the questions, right? The fact that we were able to talk about them means that they were engaging. They had the kind of, you know, pathways you were hoping to lead us down. It wasn't just no idea, guess, sniff and skip it. You know, we, we were able to actually come up with guesses. And so as a result, yeah, that does mean it significantly lengthens the time. But hopefully it's not too much of a problem for you in the edit bay. I'll work on it piecemeal over the coming weeks. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's always more exciting to tape these and to edit them. But, you know, I've I've powered through and I'll power through this one as well because it's it's a fun it'll be a fun conversation to listen back to definitely <laughs> this has been episode 16 of season two of recreational thinking with yoga shroud thanks for listening